listening to the podcast, send me. Here with you now is host, Jason Sweet. What's the count, team leader? What's the count? Down! Keep going! Hold it. Try it! Uh, Keep going! Brought to you by SOCOM Athlete. Send me. Send me. Thank you for tuning in to SOCOM Athlete's podcast, Send Me. This is your host, Jason, and today we have the honor of yet again bringing to you a powerful guest with powerful experiences to share from the special operations community, Nick Goff, 2nd Battalion Army Ranger Sniper. The primary purpose of this podcast is to empower you, our listeners, the individuals aspiring to become the next generation of special operators. So this week, we got some great news with success stories that we wanted to share with you. First of all, congratulations to Sam from our Michigan group chat. He's been a part of the SOCOM athlete community for years before finally getting a shot to enlist and go into the PJ pipeline after two and a half years of arguably the hardest pipeline in the United States military. Sam has earned his Maroon Beret and is now a United States Air Force pararescueman, aka PJ. Shout out to Sam and Nicholas, who I got some great news last week, finished SFAS and were selected to become Green Berets. They'll push on to their pipeline into the Special Forces Qualification Course, aka the Q Course. Huge shout out to Will and Nick as well on the Air Force side of the house, finishing Air Force assessment and selection and both getting selected for PJ contracts. They will take their journey next to the pre-dive course, which is a short course to get you ready for combat dive school. Hey, if I don't know your stories, it's because you haven't reached out to me. Reach out to me. Let me know how you're doing for those of you guys that are in the pipeline now, whether you're about to ship out to boot camp or whether you finish selection or about to start selection, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us. Now for some admin announcements. We have dropped our new Hell Day calendar, locations and dates. Hop on the SOCOM Athlete website or the Instagram page. Nobody else runs events like this. Hell Day is truly a life-changing experience and hundreds of individuals that have finished the Hell Day course have enlisted into the military or commissioned in the military to go off and become special operators. The Hell Day course is a full day of immersion into special operations training and selection. The evolutions, the exercises you may see in a team environment with instructors that are going to mentor you and help you through the day. Got what it takes to become a special operator in the United States military? We'll see you at Hell Day. Next item. Undoubtedly, one of the most amazing and effective resources we provide here at SOCOM Athlete are our nationwide group training chats. You can find the application process on our website at SOCOMathlete.com by clicking on the group chat subpage. Don't miss out on your opportunity to train, network, and communicate with like-minded individuals in your region, all part of the SOCOM Athlete community. Also, a big shout out to our Minnesota group chat who came down here to visit me in the beautiful Northwest Florida area recently for spring break. This Minnesota group chat is far beyond just a chat. These guys have become a family. They've become a developmental team that works together in groups of eight to 10 on a regular basis, pushing each other, holding each other accountable. I'm really excited to see the future of these individuals as they commission and enlist into the military. Several of them are just about to graduate college this May. Keep up the great work, Minnesota team. And without further delay, let's bring on our guest of the Send Me podcast for today's episode, Nick Goff. 2nd Battalion Army Ranger Sniper with over 15 deployments to the Middle East. 
After his successful career as a U.S. Army Ranger, he'd move on to work with a three-letter agency, GRS. After doing his time with GRS, he incorporated Dark Corner Concepts, hosting the annual real-world sniper competition, as well as courses on a regular basis. Nick has been a Hell Day instructor for us many times, and we look forward to having him back out at our San Antonio event coming this May. Nick, my brother, thank you for coming on the Send Me podcast. How are you today? Another day with air in the lungs. Can't complain. Amen to that, man. As long as you're breathing, life is good. Where are you talking to us from, Nick? Uh, just outside of Daytona Beach, Florida, a little town called Deland. So can't, can't complain when you're in the Sunshine State, right? Excellent. Florida is a great state, if not the best state in the United States. And you're bouncing back between Florida and Texas, right, Nick? Another halfway decent state. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that those are the two states I spend the most time between. Uh, I'd say it's about 50-50 between September and May, and then kind of more so Florida over the course of the summer. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a constant bouncing back and forth, but it's uh, all good. Nick just likes that sunshine and that warm weather. <laughs> So, Nick, you spent most of your career in the Army, post-Army, as well as now as a sniper, a sniper instructor. So I got to ask, man, what's your favorite rifle and why? Man, it's hard to go past a custom build, but if I had to go straight out of the box, man, I still like an M24, just a straight up Remington 700 bolt action. Can't complain with that, Uh, you know, whether it's a 308. 300 win mag doesn't make much of a difference to me. Just a nice smooth bolt action is, is kind of unbeatable. Uh, it's just something familiar. And can you tell us about your preferred caliber of round and why? Does that yeah, depend that, on kind of the mission, the terrain, kind of what you're it, looking to do, or, or how does that work, Nick? For, for sure. As far as application goes uh, in the military and like an operational setting, it's, it's definitely very dependent on, on the mission, on how long you're going to be there, what type of environment, so on and so forth. So um, typically we, we kind of varied between a, a 5.56, five, you know, a DMR type build, a seven, uh, SR-25, 308, or a 300 Win Mag bolt gun were kind of the three three main platforms that we deployed with and, and would kind of mix in depending on the, the mission mission set. So um, since then people have gotten wiser and admitted that there's better stuff out there and most of it comes from the civilian world. So it's, it's kind of getting adopted and rolled into the military now, which is nice to see because it definitely increases the, the lethality and rate of success for our, our dudes still out there doing the job. Well said, Nick. And a large part of being a sniper, I would imagine, is being sighted in and your optics. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what your favorite optics are and why? Yeah, so I, I was very fortunate that, you know, we, we not nothing against loophold. Uh, the loopholds that we were issued weren't exactly the, uh, the creme de la creme. They were, they were great for the time, but they were a little bit behind the times um, when, when I was in. So, I was fortunate enough to be able to be part of that transition over to some of the more technologically advanced optics, uh, your higher end night force um, optics were kind of being trickled in while I was, uh, while I was in and transitioning out. So I've kind of stuck with those uh, since getting out. It's kind of hard to beat, but now, I mean, everything is so for it to be even relevant, it has to be so high quality and so durable that, uh, all top end optics right now are, are pretty, pretty high quality pieces of equipment. So, but yeah, tend, tend to be a night force guy. 
And what were some of the weapon systems that you rolled with back when you were in the 75th Ranger Regiment? Yeah, primary was a, an SR-25, so a 308 platform, uh, semi-auto platform, uh, just because the dynamic nature of the missions that we were running was uh, still primarily a direct action type of uh, setting. So a lot of the times, you know, myself and my partner um, – or myself and an attachment, depending on the mission, would infill a little bit in advance and we'd have some kind of dynamic clearing uh, responsibility to get into our position. So having a, a semi-auto platform was uh, obviously ideal for that versus carrying a bolt gun and a semi-auto. Um, it just kind of streamlined the equipment uh, for the for the mission. Nick, it's not every day that someone meets a sniper, whether it be a sniper from the Marine Corps, the Army, or the Navy, or even the Air Force. I guess they kind of have those nowadays. Yeah. Okay. So, what even the makes, Coast Guard, even the Coast Guard. What makes yeah. a sniper, Nick? What are some of the, the character traits required of that? Because you have the, the discipline and you have the patience, but you also have to have the aggressiveness to be able to stalk and kill prey. So, yeah. what goes into being a sniper? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, uh, in my opinion, a very unique um, mindset and a unique person that uh, that really requires to to have success at it. I mean, a lot of people can pass the the selection and can pass the the required skills to to perform the task and whatnot. But I mean, I think to excel at it, you need to be uh, kind of a jack of all trades and a master of some, at least, um, you know, in, in my case specifically, like we had a huge responsibility with doing a lot of route planning, um, you know, as a, as a kind of auxiliary task. So reading terrain, planning routes, adjusting routes on the fly. So, you, you know, it really is kind of a thinking man's, uh, responsibility to, to fill that role. Um, and even when you go to these courses to like the formal courses in the military, you need to be able to kind of flex and, and think, you know, although that may be the, the easiest way, is it the best way, you know, is it, is getting closer better or is being further away better? And, um, is it this route, that route, how am I going to camouflage, you know, uh, there's, there's just a lot to it. And I mean, I think the biggest thing is it's gotta, it's gotta be someone who's willing to keep flexible but also keep willing to learn on their own you can't just kind of lay back and take what you're given for training you really need to do the groundwork on your own as well um, outside to to learn a lot of other tasks that you're not necessarily um, taught uh, by traditional schools if you will well said being a great shot is only one small small tool of the trade to be a great sniper so, Nick, where did this journey all start, man? I mean, it's not every day somebody just gets into wanting to be a sniper or want to be a United States Army Ranger. What was uh, little Nick doing back in the day? Yeah, and, you know, it does actually go back to to that far. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I was in basic and I got the opportunity to go to Airborne and then RIP or RASP or whatever and just kind of fell into it. And uh, I wish I could say it was that way for me, but it, it was pretty set in stone uh, at the age of eight to be honest with you. Um, friend of mine's brother went to uh, Mogadishu with third ranger battalion. Uh, so better off known as uh, Black Hawk down or battle of Mogadishu uh, for most people probably listening. And when he came back, it was 10 foot tall bulletproof. This guy's the doer of deeds and that's what I want to be. And uh, you know, we talked to before, but kind of a, mutual person that we know is the Gordons, right? So Gary Gordon, Randy Shugart, and 
uh, he had kind of told me of their exploits and their, you know, heroic deeds that they had performed in that specific setting. So, yeah, I wanted to be a, a ranger sniper from the age of eight and not much was going to get in that way. So. Well said with that, Nick, you are inspired by somebody. And I have recruiters from all across the different branches of DOD and students or potential recruits, candidates that all come to me and kind of ask the same type of question. How do I know which career field is best for me? Or what does it take to get an individual to want to do one of these jobs? Or what does this individual possess inside of him that enabled him to go and do this job? Well, the first step is deciding that this job is what you want to do. The first step is deciding that you want to be a special operator. And what I've noticed, the common ground of all the guests that we've had onto this podcast is almost all of them were inspired by a specific individual. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's hard, it's hard not to be. I mean, these guys are, you know, they are the, the historical, traditional stereotypical dudes that you look up to as being Captain America, as being like the real life superhero. I mean, it's hard not to want to emulate that in your life. And and if you don't, I think that needs to be evaluated as well. Yeah. Pick and choose your role models carefully. And what was it about him, Nick, that you noticed? Was it just the look in his eyes or the way that he talked to you, his, his posture, this aura coming out? How did, how did you know that this guy was the real deal? Yeah. So, I mean, his name was Kevin and, uh, you know, when I knew him my whole life, like he was my friend who was the same age, it was his older brother. And, you know, he was kind of always like this goofy, like, I don't really know how to explain him other than just kind of goofy and just your average dude. But when he came back from, it was rip at the time still. And when he came back from that, there was just something different. Like he, it was like, he went into a machine and came out like, he was the same person physically, but man, I mean, he was just a co- totally different person from the way he, you know, did day-to-day tasks or approached different things or how he spoke to you. It was just, it was impressive the transition that he went through just by going through that, those different evolutions of training. And how, how did you meet him again? This was one of your, your friend's big brothers. Yeah. So, I mean, small town, 1200 people growing up. So we knew, everyone knew everyone. Um, so I had known him my, uh, my whole life and yeah. So, I mean, he was about, I think he was three or four, probably like three or four, um, you know, grades, grades ahead of my family. So, I mean, he was a little bit on the older side. They had a family, I think there were six brothers. So he was the oldest and, um, yeah, kind of just, tracked him my whole life you know we were going over to his house and he was leaving for basic training and then we go to his house and he's coming back from rip and then when he came back from somalia it was obviously just a a whole different ball game so you knew that you wanted to do this job early where did you start man (laughs) i don't have we didn't have and i'm sure you didn't even have when when you went through your pipeline and started your progress but you didn't have any kind of real formal type of of thing to to really hand you the the cheat code and be like do these things study these things so i guess i always just kind of put myself in like awkward positions or things that pushed my comfort level um you know first like example i could think of was 16 years old i went skydiving tandem skydiving i was like well if i want to be an army ranger i should probably get used to falling out of a plane and if i can't do it hook to someone who's done it 
thousands of times might want to reevaluate that. Um, because I think that's kind of also a big thing. And I mean, when I teach with you, I always try to bring it up at least once, but if you don't make it through whatever pipeline it is that you're trying to go for, you're still in the military. So you have to be willing to accept that should you not pass the pipeline. So it's a bigger calling than just like, Oh, I want to be real life call of duty. Well, yeah, that's cool. That's what everyone wants to do, but you still have to be willing to put yourself in the position to do the country good in whatever role you're asked to do afterwards. So, um, so it was a kind of a real, like, come to come to Jesus talk with myself. Like, is this really something I want to do no matter how it shakes out? So, um, but yeah, it didn't, didn't really change me much as far as trying to get me to not do it. So it's incredible, Nick, you were self-motivated. You creatively found out a way to expose yourself to certain elements that you thought that you would potentially be getting into as a ranger. And of course, preparing yourself physically and mentally. And if you look at kind of the last 10 years or so, so it's 2022 right now, March 30th, 1115 AM central time where I'm at 1215 Eastern time. And you think about about 10 years ago is all where information started rapidly being accessible on the internet, whether it be YouTube or search engines, this information is rapidly accessible through keyword searches. And since that time, we have had almost too much information to the point where you don't necessarily know what's right. And not only that, it's almost crippled our candidates that are going into special operations as they grow up because they're seeking for the keys of the kingdom or all of the answers. And you're never going to find all of those answers. You either got it or you don't. Yes, you can make yourself more physically ready. You can develop your leadership skills, your communication, your pull-up form, your muscular strength, your running endurance, all of those things. But what gives you the will and what gives you the discipline to even train for that in the first place, you either got it or you don't. And discovering that early is extremely important. And one of the ways to be able to blow past those barriers is to have a role model, have a community sure. of individuals that are pushing you. So where were you at at this time, Nick? How old were you and what was next in your training? Yeah, so uh, was went to college for one year, uh, lost my father at a pretty young age. Um, so only child, mom kind of begged me to give college the old try. Um, so I went to college for one year and uh, enlisted on my Christmas break. So, hey mom, Merry Christmas. I enlisted. I leave five days after my birthday. Um, <laughs> what so, were you studying in college, Nick? Uh, I actually one went year. For, for forensics, uh, forensic science. and I could see that. Man, man if there was one thing that was going to keep me there, it, it probably would have been that. So it all the cards were stacked in, in the favor of this will work out for college given the, the current setup. And right. Man, I just always saw myself found myself falling back to this isn't what I want to do. This isn't what I want to do. Like there's, there's more, there's more. Um, so I always kind of had that in the back of my mind and I was always kind of taking uh, extra steps, if you will, to, to push myself knowing that that was probably the path I was going to take. And not really having a, you know, a yellow brick road laid out in front of me as far as the keys to the kingdom, as you said, I just found myself, okay, well, this seems like it would be uncomfortable. I mean, I grew up in upstate New York, so we get some pretty cold, uh, cold days, cold nights. So 
you know, go run in shorts and a t-shirt at 20 degrees, 15 degrees, just because it's going to be uncomfortable. And if I can't take this now, when I have a warm room and shower to go back to, well, probably not going to be able to do it when, you know, everything's stacked against me. So I kind of found myself always putting myself in those situations um, or, you know, well, I ran five miles yesterday. Let's see if I can run six today or seven or eight or whatever, but it was all self-imposed stressors and self-imposed obstacles that I was trying to overcome and goals I was trying to meet because I didn't really have anything else to go off of. Question for you, Nick, to take a pause real quick and hit a discussion on a topic that comes up quite a bit. What do you think is the point of getting a bachelor's degree when you are 100% committed to enlisting in the military to do special operations? A, what, what do you think is the point of it? Where, where do, what does it get you? A, and, and B, what do you think the, the thought process behind guys trying to get a degree is when they know they're just going to go enlist in special ops anyway? Yeah. Um, man, I can see so many different angles to that. So I think for some people, they're not completely convinced that they know exactly what they're going to do when they're done. They're not pot committed. They're, they're not ready to burn the ships on the, and, and sit on the beach and, you know, have no other option. Right. So they're like, well, if I go and I don't like it, I can have this as a fallback. I can Ooh, get out after a fallback. Do you, yeah. do you think that's healthy, Nick? I mean, I know I what I would say. Do you think it's healthy to have a fallback in life? We want to have backup plans. We want to have plan Bs. But in something that we know, it's kind of a do or die type thing, and you have the option of quitting, right? removing yourself. Or mm-hmm. do, you, do you feel that it's wise to have a backup plan slash fallout? I don't because, I mean, at the end of the day, you can sit there and be like, okay, well, I, have, I basically have to make two, three, four years, whatever your contract ends up being after training. Um, and then I can get out and I can go do this. So you kind of always have that plan B and I'm sure you've heard it. Other people have probably heard it, but, uh, Denzel actually gave a pretty good speech about like having a plan B and, you know, don't want to fall back on a plan B. I'm going to fall forward on a plan A kind of thing. And I'd rather fall forward. So I think that's part of it. I think that's kind of some of the mindset people have. Um, I think some people think, Maybe if they can make it through college, they'll learn some kind of life skills, communication, organization, whatever, and and kind of not be an 18-year-old kid joining the military, but maybe mature a little bit because they've now lived on their own away from home. And, you know, I, I think that might be the other kind of mindset for it. But I just, I guess I never bit off on it. I, I knew what I wanted to do. And um, I found most people that I found to, to excel in special operations kind of came from that. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it as young and as long as I can and to the best of my ability. So they kind of dove headfirst in and or jumped off a building and learned how to fly on the way down, I guess is the best, better way of putting it. But um, yeah, never really understood the, the plan B, but different strokes for different folks, I guess. Another thing to keep in mind is that college is very time consuming, depending on the credit load that we're going to take for our listeners out there. So if you're a full-time student, that's a minimum of 12 credit hours in most institutions. And typically you'll see students take between 15 and 18 credit hours, right? That's a huge time commitment. And most students that are in college are also working at the same time. And then you've got just life chores, grocery shopping, cooking, cleaning dishes, driving to class, dealing with parking, studying, all of these different types of things. And if you have a a dog or if you have a significant other, you're going to be investing time into that. Then 
somewhere, your leftovers, you may have time to train. And I feel that, well, I don't feel, I know because I see this on a regular basis that most truly don't know what they're getting themselves into. And if they did, they would be spending almost their entire day or structuring their entire day around their training. So I see some guys that think, yeah, I'm going to develop a little maturity in college. Maybe I'll learn how to communicate with others a little better or develop some more discipline when it comes to doing my schoolwork and it'll give me more time to train. Where in reality, it'll give you a longer span of years to train, but mm -hmm. it will not give you more time to train in the day, which is what is the greatest thing that you could have is enough time to be able to put in all of that required rucking and the weight training, the mobility work, the endurance running, the sprinting, the intervals, working on the evaluation distances, your 1.5 mile, your two mile, three mile, five mile, all of those different things. And then somewhere in between, if you're going to Air Force Special Warfare or Navy or Marine Corps, trying to get in your water confidence training, your swimming, all of it's just really not possible to devote the amount of time that you need. So beware for those of you that are planning on going to college and just kind of letting this goal ride out four years, beware of it because college may actually not in, it may inhibit you from being able to accomplish. Sure. Goals. Yeah. And I mean, you also, you, you kind of learn the creature comforts of life too. I mean, you're on your own, you can sleep in for the most part as late as you want because your class doesn't start till nine. There's no one telling you, Hey, go to bed early, you know, diet. There's, you know, that slips away. You get into some partying and drinking because you want to be social. So it's kind of a slippery slope. And if you're not the person that has like super strong discipline and, capable of, you know, developing a structure to live by, like, it's going to be a very hard, hard realization when you have to turn all that off to then join the military to then do, do it on their terms. So I, I think that to me would probably be the, the biggest thing that would be a an earth shattering adjustment for most people. Right. And then another consideration, I don't give this advice out very often. Another consideration, though, especially for a young and maybe a high schooler, 17, 18 years old, that isn't anywhere physically ready, but wants to develop some maturity. Maybe you enlist into the military with a conventional job. Maybe you learn a little bit of a, a tools of the trade, medicine or, or radio or weaponry or mechanics or something like that. You do that for a while, get a little money and financial security under your belt get some time to train and then cross train into one of these other jobs. That's a consideration for you. But to think that you're going to go to college for four years and get a degree in something like criminal justice, and that's going to directly help you get through selection. That's false hope. Yeah. Well, and I mean, let's just be honest. That's the first thing you hear when you get to like basic training, like I'm your mommy now, I'm your daddy now, whatever the, the drill sergeant wants to say. And if you've lived on your own for four years, going back to having someone drive your day-to-day -day for you, that's that's not always a welcomed uh, way to go. And if you're just 18 years old and you're literally leaving the nest and you've kind of always had that, you know, superior over you telling you your day-to-day, -day, then it's a little bit of an easier adjustment to go in and still have someone telling you your day-to-day -day and how you're going to conduct uh, conduct business. So um, yeah, there, I, I think it would be a very tough adjustment going four years of college and then, then pulling it off. Right. And then you see a lot of guys that are kind of trying to live their life for their parents. You know, what mm -hmm. parent wouldn't want to say, Oh, little Braden or Aiden or Jaden got it. 
uh, master's in business administration, or, or my, my son got a, a degree, a, a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. Hey, sounds great, but how are you going to use that? Right. And your parents should be just as proud of you for graduating a special operations pipeline and earning arguably the greatest job in the world. Okay. So I, th- I think what most parents want for their kids is to have a game plan more than anything and to have some security. And if you can come to your parents with a game plan and say, this is why I'm, I'm not going to do college, why I am going to enlist early. You have a game plan for them. You have a vision. Then chances are they're probably going to support you. They may not like it at first. Okay. But obviously if you have plans to commission in the military, become an officer, that degree is a requirement. You got to do what you got to do. So this is specifically a discussion for those that are enlisting and kind of delaying their process to really go in and develop that maturity in the military, develop that. I mean, how many people do you know that you talk to that did go to college that are the, I was going to enlist, but guy, I was going to enlist, but after college, I got this job offer and they always have that, man, I wish I would have. And, you know, I, I feel like just after four years, it's, it's really going to be a tough thing to rewind and go back to the whole enlistment process. Right. And to kind of close this discussion, the last thing I'll say is that Nick and I just talked about how having time on your side having plenty of time to train could possibly be the greatest advantage that you could have before you enlist or commission into the military. So the more responsibilities that you have in your life, the less time you have to train and the less mental capacity that you have to focus on your training goals. So digest that, ponder that. So Nick, one year of college, man, and then it was time to enlist. What what happened there? Uh, I mean, I would love to, it was technically one year of college, but was I ever mentally there? Probably not, to be honest with you. Um, I played college soccer while I was there and, you know, that was fun, but it was also just PT. Um, so once that died out and once the season was over, I, I definitely found myself completely disconnected from it. I was trying to do other things. I was looking for land nav classes and medical courses and like, what could I knock out from a do my homework before leaving um, kind of approach. So I really just used that time to, to try and remove variables that I knew I was going to encounter uh, when I joined, have some kind of familiarization. So plan for those, learn those a little bit. And then when they flexed on you and gave you some other wazoo thing to do, that stuff was kind of already in the bag and I could focus on the, the new uh, unknowns versus the knowns. And what were some of your, your physical fitness routines? What were you doing to train to get ready physically? Run. I, I oh was boy. a runner. I'm still, still a runner, but you know, at the time I didn't know any different. I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I knew I was going to have to run. I knew I was going to be doing long rucks and runs and this, that, and the other, and aerobic fitness was going to be, you know, something I couldn't build while I was there. Um, you just don't have the time in a pipeline and any kind of training evolution to get out and go do that. So I knew if I went in with a pretty good base level of running and uh, endurance, that that would, that would really carry over and pay dividends. So I had a, a five mile lake that I would just kind of run run laps around and man, I'll, I'll admit I, I may or may not have listened to running cadences while I did it. Um, just cause I knew that there was always the chance they're going to ask someone to call cadence and, for the betterment of the team and to get you out of a, 
a fiery crash, someone better be able to. So I learned as many cadences as I could before I left too. That was a little extra homework. Lots of running, huh, Nick? Yeah. And yeah. if you if you look at these entry exams, so the the fitness tests for the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force. For our listeners out there, a lot of you are training for those, the PFT, PST, mm-hmm. pass test, etc. The hardest, in my opinion, the most physically demanding exercise on these tests is the run. You can train to get better at swimming. Swimming may be very challenging for some, but in my opinion, it's the run. And so many people come through this program or reach out to us or come to our events and say, how do I get better at running? And one of the first questions I ask them is, how often are you running? And how far are you running when you run? And most of the guys that aren't good at running, Nick, they're not good because they don't run enough. They don't do it. And so you dive deeper into what the problem of this individual is. Why aren't you running enough? Well, because running hurts. Running's uncomfortable. And that individual, chances are, they aren't willing to sacrifice enough to become a great runner. And you have to be a great runner in order to do these jobs. And it's really a shame to see the Army and the Air Force make the standards of their fitness tests easier and easier, especially for the conventional side. Why? Because not enough soldiers, not enough airmen are passing the run on the fitness test. So they succumbed and made it easier. So get out there and run. Allow yourself to suffer. Push past it for our listeners out there. It's one of the first steps to see if you really have what it takes mentally and physically to do these jobs. Well, and I mean, anyone listening, if you think you're going to join the military and get better at running, you're not. Pretty much take the fitness level that you go there with, and it's probably only going to degrade as you go through every evolution of training. Basic, you're not going to build. Airborne school, RIP, RASP, you're not going to build because they're designed to break you down. So you need to come in with a base level of fitness that's so high that after all the degradation and all the fatigue and and lack of good chow, and I mean, if you're on a huge supplement routine ahead of time, well, guess what? You're not bringing those with you. So, you know, you have to go in with such a level of fitness that like you wake up on the morning of a PT test and you're like, cool, what else are we doing today? You don't want to be that guy standing in line before push-ups, being like, man, I got like one extra in the tank. Like you, you can't have that because you're not going to be a hundred percent the whole time. So your, your 80%, your 70% still needs to exceed that standard uh, easily or, or else you're just not going to set yourself up for success. Well said, Nick, a couple of comments. The caveat on that is one there are guys out there that just don't have it physically and have to work three or four times harder than other individuals. Maybe it takes them two years till they can finally pass the entry test to the career field they're trying to get into. Maybe the pass test, PFT, PST, two years. They can finally do it. They get the bare minimum numbers. Recruiter says, great, you check the box. They ship you out. And then all of a sudden you go to boot camp and you're folding t-shirts all day, learning how to march, studying ranks and history and doing all of these activities, but you're not getting the opportunity to train as hard as you used to. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you graduate boot camp and you get to the prep course and you do your day one fitness test and you're a little sick and out of shape from boot camp and you absolutely bomb your run. That's why 
just like Nick said, you need to go in to boot camp far above the standards. So you're not a liability to yourself, your teammates, and your future career that you are seeking out to do. In addition to that, Nick mentioned that you're going to get out of shape in courses like Airborne and obviously in boot camp. Well, Starting in about 2015 or so, and I know the 18 X-ray program for the Army was doing this beforehand, but starting about 2015, each branch of the Department of Defense implemented these prep courses prior to special operations selection. So you have what the Air Force calls SWIC now, the Special Warfare Prep Courses, it's always been called. Then you have uh, BUDS Prep over at uh, Coronado now, and you have Pre-RASP for the Army. You have SOPC, Special Operations Prep Course, right before you go to SFAS. So now the military actually invests time in you to help you get back in shape before selection. However, this is very important for our listeners out there. The prep course is not titrated per se, adjusted per se to the individual. You have one curriculum and the entire team does the same distances, the same lifts, the same amount of swimming in the pool. So if you're a stud and you like to go run 10 miles before you go into boot camp and you can do 50 meter underwaters and you're doing all kinds of Olympic lifting, you're not going to train that hard at the prep course. So beware of going into the military when you are just barely meeting the standards and beware of thinking that the prep course is going to solve all of your problems. And back in Nick's day, there was no prep course, right, Nick? (laughs) No. Um, And, you know, that's great that you can run the two mile or one and a half or one and one eight, whatever they've done and done away with now. But um, you're still going to run during the day. You're still going to run like at RIP. You run. I ran everywhere from this building to that building, from this formation to that formation to supply to here. Like you probably run 20 miles over the course of a day, (laughs) like just stupid hundred meter, hundred yard dashes here and there. So on top of PT, on top of running throughout the day, like your body is so broken down that it needs to have experienced that before. If the first time you're experiencing it is on game day, it ain't going to work. So you, you need to, to put your body through that ringer beforehand so it knows, it knows the feeling, it knows how to recover from it, and it knows what it can, it can endure and still keep going. Well said, Nick. So if you're running 20 minutes a day, a few times a week, and you think that's good, all of a sudden you're thrown into selection environment where you're running 20 minutes here, five minutes there, 30 minutes here, several times a day, it's going to shock your body. So run more. Well, I love when, when we do hell days and we're three hours in, four hours in, and you can see dudes starting to get broken off. And, you know, we start off with a PT test or whatever. And I ask them, like, could you do it tomorrow morning? And they look at you with that, like, deer in a headlights look. I'm like, because you're going to. Like, you're still going to do PT tomorrow morning after you get smoked all day today. So if you don't feel as though you can get up and put it out there again, like, that's that's your sign. Yeah, we got a little say, uh, saying in special operations, one is none. And you got out on that one is none, two is one. Meaning if you only do something once, doesn't count. You do it twice. That counts as once, but one is none. You can only do something for one day. It doesn't, it's not an indicator of whether you have the durability to do it for a prolonged period of time. So Nick, your next step was to talk to a recruiter. How did that go? Do you still remember your recruiter's name and all that good stuff or what? I certainly remember his face. I, uh, <laughs> I don't remember his name. Um, 
to say that it was a fantastic experience would 100% be a lie. Um, I mean, I knew Ranger contract, option 40, nothing else. Don't come at me with anything else. Well, you're probably not going to get a bonus. Don't care. Give me the paper. Well, what about this this 18 x-ray program? Nope, don't want it. Thank you. Appreciate the offer. Option 40 or leave. Okay, cool. And I was like, 11 Bravo. Don't want any of that other other stuff. Don't come at me with it. Man, he's like, oh, well, we don't have anything else except for 34 Fox or something, which come to find out is radio. And I was like, no, absolutely not. Um, so, man, they, they really tried to, to steer me towards what they needed, but no 68 whiskey there, Nick, get, get in touch with your, uh, your compassionate side a little bit and learn some medicine. I'm all about whiskey, but that ain't one of them. So, <laughs> um, not that kind yeah. of whiskey. No, sir. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, you know, if you're dead set on something and you are 100%, this is what I want to do. They will find it for you. So that is my biggest advice is, is do not go down a permanent pathway for your, you know, your career and your livelihood, um, for something you don't want to do. So that's all I can say really about that. (laughs) Why do you think recruiters are not all of them? There's a lot of great recruiters out there. Why do you think recruiters for the most part are such a challenge to deal with? I mean, I think we all know that there's quotas and there's things that they need to, there's a big incentive for them to fill. And, and, you know, it's a job, it's a job just like anything else. It's it's a job in the civilian world. They advertise for certain positions, right? Um, It's it's no different in the military. There's roles that need to be filled. Um, But I, I think when you completely take someone who's willing and wanting to go above and beyond, not just someone who's looking to sign on the line because they don't have any other options, um, I, I think to try and take that away from them to uh, fulfill your requirements is, is a disservice to to not only the person trying to sign up, but also the military as a whole, because you want those guys who are ready, willing and able to do the top jobs, um, you know, special operations or whatever the case may be. You want the people who want to do it in those in those roles. Um, because chances are they've been preparing for it and they're, they're mentally accepting of what it is. So I think if you try and take that guy and make him a truck driver or cook or, you know, underwater basket weaver, whatever the case may be, I think it's a disservice to him as an individual, but also the military as a whole, because those are the, the hard chargers that you want, you know, out on the, on the field doing, doing the day to day and doing the deeds. So I think that's my biggest issue with that. Right. And I feel like some people come into the, their initial relationship with the recruiter with some, si- some sort of false sense of entitlement, like the recruiter is starving to sign this individual up and, and the United States military desperately needs you like it's some kind of draft and, and we're st- that's not the way it is. Mm-hmm. The recruiter works by the, by the hour, not by the job. So if a recruiter has a, an eight-hour day and there's an individual that keeps hitting up that recruiter, hitting up that recruiter, man, maybe they're passing their PFT, but that individual seems to be requiring a lot of extra paperwork for that recruiter. Maybe that individual needs a waiver or maybe the individual has a couple discrepancies on their report. Well, that recruiter, as long as they're meeting their quota, probably is going to avoid that individual because the recruiter owes that individual nothing. 
They owe the individual nothing. So I think it's important for people to understand that when it comes to dealing with recruiter, don't go into it with this sense of entitlement or this sense of this recruiter owes me and they're going to be super excited. Talk to me. You're, you're doing a job interview. You've got to convince that individual why they should spend time on you. And you've got to show that individual why you're a great candidate. And you know what? Recruiters are a dime a dozen. So if one recruiter doesn't work for you, go contact a different recruiter. Go check out a different branch. Don't give up just because you're not seeing good results with your recruiter. So Nick, how, how did it go with your recruiter? I assume they got you the option 40. I, I mean, got you what you needed. How'd it go? Yeah. So the, the first one, so that kind of tells you right there how it went. Uh, the, the first one was trying to, to fight me tooth and nail the whole time. Um, and come to find out, I actually saw him maybe like four years later. So I was in and I was back from a deployment and actually saw him at like one of my local uh, sporting events and come to find out he even admitted to me point blank. He's like, I had just never done an option 40 contract. So I really knew nothing about it. And so I I appreciated his transparency after the fact. Um, Not that it did me any good, but uh, I actually ended up leaving from a a MEP station uh, about six hours away from my house. It was actually closer to the college I went to. And, and that recruiter was, was really good. He had actually come from, uh, didn't really get it out of him, but some kind of special operations background, whether he is there and got asked very politely or less politely to leave, whatever the case was, he, uh, he had spent some time there. So he, he knew what I was trying to go for and, and really did take care of me. Um, but you know, you put it perfectly, it's a job interview. So I approached it as a, I'm going to make myself a no brainer. I'm coming here with no medical issues. I can pass a PT test right now. I'll blow this ass fab out of the water. Like I'm your non-issue. It's going to take you as much time as it takes you to do the paperwork kind of, kind of thing was how I tried to approach it. Um, so to, like you said, by the hour, right? So if he can process that paperwork in 20 minutes, it was my goal to make me a 20 minute problem in his eyes, not a three month. Okay. Come do this, go figure out that then come back. And then I need to get this. Um, I just didn't want it to be like that. So he was great. Um, yeah, he, he was good. Uh, actually talked to him, I think maybe five years ago, not, not too long ago. So he's, uh, he's retired living the, the retired military life and, uh, yeah, very appreciative for, for him taking care of me the way he did. Well, you did it right, Nick. And for our listeners out there, take note of what Nick did because it worked. He was proactive is the word. He lined up all of his paperwork. He wanted to be low maintenance for the recruiter and he was meeting all of the eligibility criteria. So what a recruiter wants to see is that A, you meet the eligibility criteria for the job that you are seeking and B, that you are low maintenance. So what happened from there, Nick? So about, I think it was five days after my, my 19th birthday, I, I left for basic training and uh, got there and it kind of set in really quick because you went to like the basic training, pre-basic training where they kind of hold you and do all the admin stuff. And I mean, I'll admit, I looked around and I was like, these are the, these are the guys like, this is, this is the United States army. Um, because you're there with everybody from all walks of life, all levels of preparation. And, you know, when you know what you're going to do and when that is special operations and you come there prepared to do that, like you look around and you're, you're under the impression everyone is there to do that. So everyone should be you know fit and just squared away and, uh, ready to go. And, and it's not like that. 
there's it's not like that at all i actually remember calling home i think it was the very first time and i looked at my i talked to my mom and i was like i can't do this like if these are the if this is it no i can't do this and she's just like stop it they're not all trying to do what you're gonna do you'll they'll filter out you know it'll all come together and and it did um i was i was blessed i got to a basic training and had a, a actual former rrd guy regimental reconnaissance uh, guy as a, a drill sergeant and i mean drill sergeant stone and you know big giant scar down his face and he looked like a stone like he just was that guy and and he really took care of those of us who were on contract option 40 contracts and when i say took care of us i mean we got extra pt uh, a lot and <laughs> and he taught us you know the ranger creed which most of us kind of already had under under wraps and whatnot but he really took care of us because he knew what, what we were there to do so uh, basic training was was actually a pretty good experience you make some buddies in basic training i did uh still best friends with two two specifically right now and it was kind of funny one of them uh, we went basic airborne rip together when went to different ranger battalions um both became snipers oddly enough came back together at one of the at the regular army sniper school split apart for a couple more years and then we showed up at uh, grs selection contract selection together uh totally had no idea either one of us was going so we deployed as civilians together i think like four times so uh yeah it, it, it's a lifelong friendship for sure Two of my best buddies to this day, Nick and Brandon, I met at boot camp. They would later become PJs with me. Some of the best memories is going through such a unique experience together and, and conquering a challenge together. It can build bonds like, like none other. Mm-hmm. So what happened after boot camp? So uh, boot camp went to, at the time, uh, Airborne. So I know that's kind of flip-flopped now um well, but yeah to, to pause real quick for our listeners out there the reason why it flipped was because in the past recruiters were telling candidates hey we'll get you option 40 that guarantees your slot to airborne and then if you don't want to be a ranger you can just quit after you get done with airborne because you got your wings and there were so many individuals doing that using this opportunity to get their airborne wings and then quitting that the army decided they were no longer going to send ranger candidates to airborne now it's the first school that they go to after they graduate rasp Mm -hmm. and earn their tambourine yeah and i mean you hit it on the head that's exactly what happened uh actually left for for the military with a kid from my hometown and he was on the same contract as me so i was like oh this will be great you know same same cloth and everything and sure enough the rip cadre come down to, to airborne school to pick you up and they're like all right, last chance, you know, it doesn't get more fun after this. Who wants to quit? And like five hands went right away. Um, and he was one of them and he had never said anything to me prior. So I was, I was kind of shocked by it, but yeah. So I went to airborne school. Um, I spent a really long time in airborne hold um, because they just like we kind of have touched on before. They didn't have the space for uh, another class. So when I talk about losing PT and losing fitness, that's specifically in my mind where a lot of that happened for guys. We were there for almost two months and you sit in a room on a bunk and then you eat and then you sit in a room on a bunk and then you eat <laughs> and you get like an hour a day to PT um, if you're lucky. So yeah, that was a, that was a pretty tough time, honestly, because you're so stagnant and just there with your thoughts, but you have to, 
have to be eyes on the prize or else you're going to go crazy and take the first option they give you out of there, um, which a bunch of guys did leave. They didn't end up going to airborne school. And I think they ended up in like Korea or something, but um, yeah. So went through airborne school, had a very abbreviated experience. Thanks to mother nature, uh, lots of lightning, lots of rain, uh, lots of jumps in one day. So had a very abbreviated airborne school, which was good, bad, indifferent. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Went to rip from there and we, we were the first rip class after Christmas exodus at Fort Benning. So uh, it was a massive class and they literally told us, Hey, day one doesn't end until we have a bunk for everyone. And we're nowhere near having that. So uh, we had a very long first day till a bunch of, bunch of guys decided they, they didn't want it that bad. Oh, they had to get some guys to quit, huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> Back to Airborne, Nick. I got to say, you're kind of lucky that you got to knock out all those jumps in one day because if there's anything I remember not liking about Airborne, it's that we would get JMPI'd. So that's for listeners out there, that's a jump master personnel inspection or jump master parachute inspection, right? So they're looking through all of your main canopy. They're looking through your reserve. They're checking your risers for twists and frays. They're checking your your pins and all of your, your hooks and your D rings and your belly bands and all of that good stuff. Right. So after you get JMPI, you can't move because this JMPI inspection is basically saying, Hey, this guy's equipment is good to go. If he jumps out, parachute's going to open. Life is good. So after you get that inspection, you can't move. Basically you can't touch anything. You just got to sit there. And so like 500 dudes had to get JMPI'd. And if you got JMPI'd like first or 10th or whatever, you'd be sitting around for an hour, just frozen until you finally get to get on that plane. So at least, Nick, you didn't have to sit in the darn hangar JMPI'd all day long, my man. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was good. My first jump was pretty much a night jump, though, um, because we were on like a weather call. So we kept waiting. They're like, all right, we're going to wait an hour. All right, we're going to wait an hour. And then we were like the last stick to go. And it was, uh, it was a pretty dark first jump. But, uh, you know, in hindsight, I, I guess I was like, well, at least it's not going to get harder than this. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a decent experience for sure. Do you remember any of your jumps? Did they all go smooth. You, you remember the the pool sequence or falling past other jumpers or crash landing for the first time? I think I had I had a pretty pretty vanilla, pretty straightforward, no issue kind of class. Um, I, I will say the first time that someone passes under you and you lose the air in your canopy, it, it's it's a little surreal because you're like, oh, this is it, this is how I go right here and. Uh, but it comes back. There's a, there's enough altitude. So uh, definitely did jumps after that, that were way, way worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely different, different experiences for everyone. I had a couple of friends get seriously injured, um, you know, two classes down the road from us, but yeah, it, it was a pretty decent, pretty decent experience. For our listeners out there, we've been doing these static line jumps for almost 100 years, okay? We're talking like World War II style, jump out of the plane and crash land. You don't stand up your landings on these parachutes. These are circular parachutes. Whenever you jump out of the plane, there's a static line. Excuse me, before you jump out of the plane, you connect your static, better connect that static yeah. line. The static line that you have on your canopy, okay, you clip that to a metal cable that is inside of the aircraft, okay? And then when you jump out of the airplane, 
the end of your static line is connected to the apex of your parachute, but it's anchored to the inside of the aircraft. So it pulls the parachute out naturally. Okay. And then this little piece of, I think it's 80 pound test or five, it's probably 80 pound test, 550 cords. It snaps and now you're free. And yep. you're basically falling to earth at about what, 15 miles an hour. And you got to make sure that you're not falling fast in other jumpers. If you're a big dude, you weigh 220 or so, you're always going to fall fast in other yeah. jumpers. Get used to it. And then you crash land. Okay. So by crash land, this is called a PLF, a parachute landing fall. Feet, knees together. And then you do this type of twisting when you hit the ground so that you can distribute that force of impact all throughout your lower body and you don't break your legs. So you basically learn the first week of airborne is learning how to PLF. You just fall on the ground all day long for five days straight. And if you can fall on the ground, conduct a proper PLF, then you graduate on to tower week. A lot of, a lot of classes don't even get to do tower week. Really? They just nope. end up jumping. Yep. Yeah. We didn't have tower week, uh, weather, weather kicked, uh, kicked tower week to the curb. So that a boy you just you yeah. just sent it yeah i think we had like seven seven or eight actual training days in the entire course and if you think about it that's, that's really all you need and, like and three of them were jump days so, <laughs> it's really all you need and nobody died nick yeah. nobody died I mean, it can be done if you think about it i mean static line jump you could literally take like a monkey put a parachute on it throw it out the plane and it's about the same rate of success as you're going to have it's it's designed for the lowest common denominator that's that's for damn sure sounds about right and one interesting issue is that the united states only has one static line school and that's airborne now keep in mind there are a couple little other ones out there for example the navy has their own static line course that they send the sqt students at seal qualifying training guys that have completed buds, but haven't got their tridents yet. Those guys have their own five-day static line course that they go to prior to military free fall school, halo school. But the only static line jump school is right there, Fort Benning, Georgia, been the same for the last 80 years. You'd think that the Air Force would have their own course because of all their own aircraft, but it doesn't happen. So ironically, one of the reasons that contracts are so backed up right now, March of 2022, is because of the COVID the COVID delays, Army Airborne School has a significant shortage of slots. And because of that, everything's backed up. So whether it be brand new Army Rangers or brand new TACP operators from the Air Force or PJ students or ROTC people or that lieutenant colonel that needed some reenlistment incentive, like everybody is backed up right now because Airborne is low on slots because of the COVID delays. It would be nice if there was a different static line school besides good old Army Airborne School. But at least we can all share that in common. Han, huh, Nick, we yeah. all had to go to Benny. Same, same bread gets broken. That's for sure. So at the time that you went through the pipeline, it was not called RASP, Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. It was called RIP, right? Ranger Indoctrination Program. Indoctrination, I like that sounds a little bit more evil, I, you know? How I wish they would have never changed it. I mean, it's just history there. So how was RIP for you, Nick? What was that all about? It's like, it's a, it's a very interesting thing because you've dreamt about it for, you know, at that point, almost 11 years, about 11 years. 
Um, you've imagined what it's going to be you've prepared mentally for what you think is going to be the worst four weeks of your life. And yet it still somehow finds a way to surpass that. Um, it, it was, it was everything I had built it up to be. And then some, um, I think what I hadn't planned for was kind of like the mind games in regards to, you know, an example was they apparently found supposedly found, uh, a supplement in our room. So three of us were in a room and they found this like Endurox powder endurance supplement or whatever, right before we happened to be going to coal range, which is like the, the final, like you pass coal range, you're pretty good to go. Like it's hard to start to fail after that. And so they pulled the three of us from that room aside and they're just like, it was you, it was you, or was it you, or was it you? And trying to get you all to, to narc on each other. And here you are, you're like, man, I got, a week left of this whole thing and it's coming down to this supposedly powder you found in my room um and then you're like did they even find powder like i don't know and you're all saying no it's not me um so we kind of dealt with that like mind game and come to find out that they had actually found it but they knew exactly whose it was um but they wanted to see if we'd all roll on each other like they wanted to see if we the other two of us knew um, so I really wasn't prepared for that kind of thing. I just figured it was going to be like physical torture and, you know, passing task must pass task. And, uh, so, so the games, the little games just never ceased to, to end. There was always more, but, uh, it was good. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. It's still something to this very day that I will revert back to when I'm in certain situations and be like, well, if I can pass that, I can do this. If I can do that, I can do this. Um, but I also think that it's something that I, I like to pass along, like those lessons and those situations to people, um, you know, whether they're just an athlete or, you know, some kind of high level business person. And, you know, they're in a situation where they think that it's terrible and you're like, okay, well, think about this. And all of a sudden to them, it's not so terrible. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it was if it's something that you go through and then you just kind of brush it off as past experience and that, that was that, then I don't think you got out of it, what you should. I think it should always be something that sticks with you and that you take lessons from. So um, I'm thankful that, that I did get to bring a lot of lessons home from that. Could you draw back in the memory bank a little bit and maybe describe to us what a typical day for you at RIP was like. What, what is Ranger selection like? Yeah, so uh, pretty, pretty pretty vividly. Um, <laughs> you wake up and you go on you typically some kind of unknown distance. Is unknown this like 4 a.m., 3 a.m.? Yeah, um, from what I recall, 4 a.m., I still hate like those orange street lights because that's what they had around the, the rip compounds so you're lined up on the i think it was a basketball court or a tennis court or some kind of court and you know it's just the old school rip barracks and you're in formation and then you go on some kind of unknown un, undescribed pt event of some nature whether it's running up cardiac hill and hoping you're not the last one or 10 mile unknown pace run with you know some freaking gazelle rip cadre who has been preparing for this for three days and he slept in his own bed and he takes off and you got to keep up um come back from that usually have some kind of unrealistic shower time frame for you to be <laughs> cleaned up and in uniform and then back in formation for chow 
usually some kind of unrealistic chow expectation, like all of you will be done in eight minutes. Um, well, that's probably not going to happen. So you get smoked for that. Um, but then, you know, you get go on with the day and they usually try and they teach some kind of task, um, you know, land nav or medical or whatever the case may be. Um, but of course getting smoked all along the way because someone's dozing off or whatever the case may be. Um, then usually a little bit more PT and more chow and more classes and repeat again, write the Ranger Creed a solid 50 to a hundred times a day in your little notebook. And yeah, it's a pretty rinse and repeat, but that's what it is. It's a, a war of attrition. I mean, who can do this day after day after day, not only meeting physical requirements, but having the cognitive ability to complete task and meet timelines and who takes charge and says, Hey guys, like we were a little slow on this. I think if we do X, Y, and Z, we can cut that time down and, and maybe meet this time hack. So um, it's a sneaky little filter out who's going to be a leader, who's going to step up, who's going to f- try and figure out the keys to the castle. It's kind of like an escape room, like who's going to take charge and get the team out of that room. Um, or are y'all just going to kind of sit around until time expires? So for our listeners out there, listening to these podcasts and the conversations between myself and our guests, being able to extract pieces of wisdom and tips and information is absolutely critical. And what I extracted out of what Nick had mentioned for a typical day at Ranger selection was the timelines, the time. Think about it, guys. If you were to just remove the time factor out of these courses, they'd be easy. 10-mile run, doesn't matter how long it takes. Oh, you got to eat lunch, doesn't matter how long it takes. Oh, you got a push-up max today? No time limit. Just go as long as you want. The timeline is everything. And if you want to start setting yourself up for success now and being a good soldier, which requires being at the right place at the right time, in the right uniform, with the right equipment, if you want to get some practice now, build a timeline for yourself. Mm -hmm and execute that timeline. Hit your timeline, especially you future leaders and officers out there. Hit your timeline. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, I mean, I I obviously have days where I'm like, I feel like I didn't get anything done today. And then I sit back and I'm like, well, I didn't have a plan. You know, I didn't dedicate 30 minutes to this, 20 minutes to this, set an alarm to do this task at this time. And it's amazing the amount of stuff you can get done in a quarter of the time if you actually have a plan. I mean, just something as simple as lay out your your workout gear ahead of time. I mean, it could take you 30 minutes to find your shoes, get your shoe, get your socks, fill up a water bottle, get your headphones, whatever the case may be. It could take 30 minutes or it could take you as long as putting your shoes on because everything is right there. Um, So you find these little like little cheat codes, if you will, on how to expedite these things. Like, I know tomorrow, for example, at RIP, I know tomorrow at some point I'm going to wear this uniform. Well, I'm going to put all of that stuff together. So all I have to do is literally grab it, dump it out of my wall locker and put it on. Not open up my wall locker, find my top, find my bottoms, so on and so forth. Um, so definitely sit back and like analyze the task that you're doing on a recurring basis and find little little seconds here and there because where you're finding seconds, you can help other people find seconds. And then you can focus on all that other unrealistic stuff that gets thrown at you unexpectedly. That's such a good point. 
Nick, you mentioned prepping, prepping your gear, which is one of the ways that you can smoothly execute your game plan, execute your plan. And for our listeners out there, building a plan is not easy. It's hard. You have to be patient. You have to block out distractions, sit down and develop a plan. And then you got to go execute it. But for our listeners out there, I have a challenge for you. Can you do this for me? Can you spend five, 10, 20 minutes, whatever it takes tomorrow, sit down and plan out what a perfect day would be for you. Knocking out all of the things that you want to knock out. Plan that whole thing out and see how well you execute it. And you're going to start learning. All right, I have unrealistic expectations for myself. Or I don't have high enough expectations for myself. This takes longer than that. Okay, I wasn't accounting for how long it takes for me to park and walk into the store when I was planning out my grocery shopping for the day. Or whatever it is, you're going to become a better planner. So plan, plan, plan. That's great wisdom there, Nick. What were some of the most challenging physical evolutions for you in selection? I think it's it's the totality, right? It's not any one task that is difficult, like a five-mile run in 40 minutes. It's not difficult. But after getting smoked for 14 hours the day before and having done a 10-mile run at 20% faster than you probably should have that five mile run all of a sudden now becomes a little bit more challenging. Um, you know, a land nav course at night, like not in and of itself, super challenging, but after you've been smoked all day and you're tired and hungry and now you're moving through the woods at night, busting through brush, like now that becomes a physical, physically taxing event. Um, And, you know, do you do well in the hot or do you do well in the cold or do you not do well in either one? Because chances are you're not going to go through one of these pipeline evolutions in perfect weather. You know, some are going to be hot, some are going to be cold, some are going to be in between. Um, So, you know, that's going to be a physically taxing thing on some people. I was fortunate I came from upstate New York. So I went through a Georgia winter, which, yeah, it's cold, but it's not an upstate New York winter. Um, but the guys from Arizona, Florida, Texas, like they didn't like the winter so much. So they really, it really sucked the energy out of them. They weren't used to, to doing a run in the cold, like it just zapped them. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was any one thing. I think it was just doing those one things over and over and over again, as you become more fatigued, um, that really started to add up. So it I mean, wasn't keep it in wasn't, mind you're not also running in your shoes that you run in at home you're running in what the army issued you you're not rucking in you know high speed boots you bought at REI you're you're using the Bellevilles or whatever the army issued so not only is it physically just kind of wearing on you but your gear is also not necessarily ideal so that provides its own little aches, pains, and nuances as well. So that's why I would say overall, it adds up over time. It's just that big grind of everything and doing it over and over for a certain amount of time. It kind of makes you going back to college. If you were, if you only had to take one class at a time, one class per semester, chances are you'd probably get an A in that class. It's the fact that you are taking four, five plus classes at the same time and having to deal with that schedule and their overlapping and that overall grind that makes it the challenge. So again, one is none, two is one. You can do one day of something. That doesn't really mean anything. You got to be able to do it over 
and over and over again. What were some of the most physically challenging evolutions for you, Nick? Was it like long ruck marches or was it log PT or low crawling and getting smoked or what was it for you? I would say um, the rucking was the most foreign um, for sure. You know, I, I admittedly didn't put a ruck on my back before I left for basic. Um, just, I just didn't, I didn't really think to have one. I didn't have a place even in my hometown that I could get one. Um, you know, Amazon one click buying wasn't a thing <laughs> then when not to age myself, but it's true. Um, now could I have used a backpack? Sure. Um, but I also tried to take the approach of being flexible and kind of not over preparing and not over gaming because I didn't want to get caught off guard when it didn't go to plan. Um, so I kind of just took it of the, of the mindset that this is probably all going to suck and it's all probably going to be worse than the thing before it. Um, so I'll take that when it comes, but I would say the rucking for me was probably the most, uh, most challenging to get used to just because again, it was so foreign and, you know, it tugs on your traps. Not that I had traps at the time, but where the traps are supposed to be, um, <laughs> it tugged on those and, you know, you don't know how to necessarily sit it on your lower back properly. And you don't know how to, cause they don't necessarily take the time to, to teach you the little cheat codes to how to properly pack a ruck. They just let you suffer through it. And all right, cool. Now we'll teach you how, so it doesn't hurt as bad now that we know you can make it. Um, but you know, waiting it properly and having it sit on your hips properly and straps can go here and do this, that, and the other. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was definitely the most uncomfortable, um, Definitely thing I dreaded the most was putting a ruck on my back. And doing a five-mile ruck march for time for an evaluation is one thing, but rucking five miles total when you are navigating from point to point and you're fatigued and you're tired and you're having to use a map and a compass, now things get a little bit more challenging. Can you tell us a little bit about how your, your land nav experience was out there in the infamous coal range? Yeah, so I would say that I, I was probably before I left most intimidated by land nav, um, despite growing up in, in upstate New York where I had terrain and I had woods and you know, I lived in the center of the Adirondack park. So I, I easily could go out and just wander around the woods. And I often did, but I never did it in a planned manner where I was like, Oh, I'm going to shoot an azimuth. I'm going to walk here. I just kind of knew where I was. Let going. me go grab my compass real quick. Right. And there's no terrain really down in Ford Pinning, right? It's just sand and pine trees. No. And it's just, I mean, it gets thick in certain spots and you know, different parts, spots are bare and it, so it's, it's a different, different ball game for sure. But I was very intimidated by, um, by land nav and I, and I knew that it was going to be a must pass event um, along the entire way and obviously super important when I got to, to Ranger Regiment. So, um, I actually took some, some mountaineering type courses before I left. Uh, a buddy of mine's father was kind of a, he was a park ranger and, and whatnot. So, um, that's what I did the, the summer before I left, I did a bunch of orienteering and map reading and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, I knew when I would be at my weakest, that I wouldn't have to be like struggling cognitively to perform this task. Um, so, and I would say that probably paid the biggest dividends in my success just because that is a pass fail event and you're not doing it under ideal situations and circumstances. So the, the fact that I was kind of able to do that um, fairly easily was, was extremely helpful. 
Well, I'm glad it worked out because a lot of guys will reach out and this kind of brings us back to the whole college thing. Oh, I want more time to train. But in reality, the reason why you're not in as good a shape as you are is because you're not working hard enough Mm -hmm. and having more time in college is never going to fix that problem. Right. But you see guys who are like, Hey, uh, I want to be a PJ. I'm not really in, in as good a shape as I want to be in. I don't have any experience in the pool, but I want to make progress towards it. So I was thinking about getting an EMT basic class and, and doing that. Well, it makes sense maybe to that individual because you're learning some stuff about medicine, but at the end of the day, the Air Force in the PJ pipeline is going to pay you to learn that mm-hmm. skill the way that they want you to learn it. And it's going to be relevant and applicable for the career that you're going to do. You're actually going to go use it. But getting a EMT basic qualification when you haven't even secured your PJ contract or, or fixed some of the mental issues that you have in order to work towards that may not be the best piece of advice. But when it comes to maybe learning some land nav before you go into the Army with an 18 x-ray contract or an option 40, that may be a better advantage because if you look in the past, when we used to navigate from one place or the other, we did not have GPS navigation on the cell phone. We had road atlas. We had oral directions. So you would be, you would say, Hey, uh, you're going to go down highway 87 and then you're going to exit the highway on fig street. And then you're going to take your second left off of fig street. It's called Newman Avenue. Go down Newman Avenue, look for the big oak tree on the right side, and you're going to try to find the blue truck in the driveway. It's house 1999, and you'll see me out front, right? And and so the person on the way would be familiarizing yourself with the terrain, looking for the big oak tree, looking for signs, uh, uh, gauging distance traveled without even really realizing it, right? And then all of a sudden, nowadays, you pop in an address and you just let that GPS talk to you and you're doing 10 other things while you're driving and you can't even remember how to get back to that place the second time you go there yeah. without the GPS, right? So we're, we're crippling ourselves with technology in society these days to where maybe a young man shows up at RASP or SFAS and they're out there doing navigation for the first time on a strict timeline and they're really struggling with it because mm-hmm. their brain hasn't developed those types of things. So Nick, would you recommend to our listeners out there to, to maybe try to hit some type of, of land nav formal training or some, some type of formal training in that um, before they enlist? Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, like you brought up a great example with the EMT before going into something that's going to have some kind of like medical um, faculties to it, such as PJs, for example. Um, man, a, a mountain's going to always be a mountain. A ridge is always going to be a ridge so on and so forth. So um, that's something that's not really going to evolve. It's not really going to change. So it's a really good baseline to establish um, before you go. And the other thing is it pays dividends, you know, not so much in rip and rasp because it's primarily an individual, individual, but team environment, if you will. But like you get to Ranger school, for example, and you got a whole group of clowns with you who probably aren't good at land nav. But yet your success and your day really depends on their success. So if you have that guy who's hot with a compass and can be like, hey, guys, I'm going to get us there in 40 minutes, even though they, they think it's going to take us two hours. You've just now become a, a multiplier to your team. 
then you've really saved yourselves extra work because instead of going up and over the mountain, you figured out a way around it. And that, although it's a little longer, it's a lot easier. Um, so being able to do that stuff, like those types of tasks, um, kind of easily and, and being very, very efficient at them, um, really increases your effectiveness, not just as an individual, but to the team as well. So, um, I would definitely spend some time and, you know, those courses aren't expensive. Usually, usually, you know, park rangers will put them on for free sometimes throughout the year. Um, but anything like that, any task, you know, you're going to be asked to, to perform, especially under, under stress or under, um, you know, weakened, uh, situations where your body's weak and you're really run down, like by all means, make those things familiar to yourself prior to, to going. Right. The less familiar they are, the more challenge you're going to deal with when you get to this course. It's not just going to be, well, I have to plan a good route here and I have to execute my plan and be in good shape because I've got this heavy pack on my back and it's really hot and humid and I'm running out of energy. It's not just that that you're dealing with. Now it's the fact that you're completely unfamiliar with woods in general. You've never really been in the woods. So your body is is really uncomfortable. Your mind's uncomfortable. It doesn't come as natural to you. Maybe you've never really been in the woods at night either. Maybe you've never been able to familiarize yourself with different types of trees and bushes. And okay, that's probably, there's probably going to be a root over there. So I'm going to make sure to take two steps out of the way instead of just nailing a root. All of these types of things that you just kind of learn by being in the woods as a kid may not come so natural to somebody. So at the end of the day, maybe it's a land nav course that you sign up for, but maybe it's just getting out in the elements more, or perhaps it's making a a focused effort to actually navigate on your own and familiarize yourself with terrain. Maybe every time you come to a, a new city or a new town, you always first try to figure out which way's north, east, south, west. Because if you know one cardinal direction, you know all the rest of them, whether you're using the sun in the morning or in the evening to kind of help you learn your direction or whether it's where the mountains are near your city. I know the mountain range is always north or I know the ocean is always west or south or east. So now I know everything else. Invest some time in getting familiar with the terrain and how the world works. I mean, I'd say the biggest thing that we see at the Hell Day events and whatnot is when we go into open water, how uncomfortable people get. You know, phenomenal pool swimmers, for example, collegiate level freestyle pool swimmers, they blow that part out of the PT test and then you throw them in the open water and all of a sudden they forgot even how to tread water. That's a great point every single time so i mean i'll never forget i think it was the very first one that i did with you um i I remember his name and i'm not going to say it but we're doing the the in the pool stuff and he's gasping for air and freaking out and i was like you want to be a navy seal and you're freaking out in the pool with us holding your feet like you have a long way to go so if you know what you want to do, think about the task and the situations you're going to be put in and replicate them. Because if you can't do it at home when you can call mom or dad to come get you if things don't go well or crawl into your bed or a hot shower or whatever, you're certainly not going to learn how to do those on the fly. Like it's just not going to happen. And if it does, good for you. But I promise you, you're making it hundred times harder on yourself than it has to be. So if you think you're going to, if you want to go Marine reconnaissance, 
probably should get in the ocean and try and swim a hundred yards offshore without, you know, hyperventilating. Um, so put yourself in those situations because again, if you can't do it in perfect conditions, you're not going to do it in the middle of the night, um, in the middle of the ocean, 40 miles offshore. Amen to that. I had a student and again, I won't say his name, but I had a student that, um, he wants to be a seal and he's a local guy down here. I do some volunteer stuff and, and I have a local group down here in, in Northwest Florida, but, um, guy was registered for our hell day and he showed up, he did well at the hell day, but he wants to be a seal. And I invited him out to go surfing with me. And dude, when he, when he showed up, he's like, Hey man, I'm gonna be upfront with you. Like I, I've never really been in the ocean before. And I'm not that great of a swimmer. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to put you on a surfboard. Let's familiarize you with the open water. Let's get you out there. Water was about 62 degrees. So it was cold. You're talking, you got low body fat. You're going to be shivering pretty bad in 62 degree water. And we get him out there. And first of all, he's having trouble. We're in about eight feet of water. So it's the first time he's ever been in water where he cannot touch the bottom. And this guy's pretty tall. So he's in about eight feet of water. He's struggling treading and he's shivering. I can see that the hair standing up on his head, for goodness sake, he's so cold. And you can tell that he's really struggling out there. And the only thing that's keeping him in the fight is, man, I don't want to look bad in front of Jason and I don't want to drown. And we spent about 20, 30 minutes out there and I get a call from him after hell day. And he says, Hey Jay, I've been putting a lot of thought into it. And I really appreciate you opening up um, this experience to me and, and opening up my eyes. I don't want to be a seal anymore. And that's realistic. You know, you, you think that you want to be a Navy seal, but you are terrified of the open water or you don't deal well with cold water, this is what you're going to be doing for a career, for goodness sakes. It's not about you and conquering your fears. Mm -mm. It's about you being an asset to your teammates one day in the United States military so that you can accomplish a mission. This isn't about you. This is about the country. So for listeners out there, you got to be realistic with yourself. If you weigh 100 pounds, You can't expect that you're going to be able to carry around a 70-pound rucksack up and down the mountains at Fort Benning, Georgia. You're just not built for it. Now, am I ever going to tell somebody they can't do something because they're not built for it? Absolutely not. What I will tell that individual is what it's going to take to get to where you need to be. And then that individual can make the determination whether or not they can do what it takes to get there. So well said on that, Nick. Yeah, I mean, we had that. We had one guy, uh, I remember he quit because it was, I don't know if you remember, but we hung the rope over the de- the dock, the pier, and threw it in the water, and it was pitch black out, and they're trying to figure out how to climb up it, and this guy couldn't figure out how to climb up it, and he's like, I'm not doing it, and he quit during hell day. I'm like, well, I'm glad you did it here, because once you sign on the paper, that's that's it. You're in. You're doing something, so um, I, I think exposing yourself to those situations where you're going to have to do it or not is, is the only way that you can tell if it's for you. It's not about being able to just pass certain standards. It's, it's the scenarios and situations you're going to find yourself in as well. And Nick, it may not be common knowledge to most. It can be confusing, especially to guys that, that don't plan on going into the army or haven't been in the army. Can you tell our listeners the difference between ranger school and rasp or, or rip what you went through? Um, Ranger school basically says you're good at camping. Um, it's kind of the running joke. Uh, but in, in all, all seriousness, it's a leadership course. So 
Um, that's that's just basically what it boils down to. It, it's your ability to lead and conduct certain leadership tasks um, while being tired and hungry um, for people who are also tired and hungry. So um, it's a leadership course, and and for some people it's great, and for some people it you know it forces them out of their comfort zone and to to do things that they never thought they would be able to do. Um, and for that, it's phenomenal. But uh, Ranger Battalion is it's an actual unit. It's a special operations unit. So you're part of special operations community. You're conducting missions as such. You're working with other uh, units in the special operations community. So one is a unit. One is a school. I guess is the easiest way to easiest, biggest delineation between the two. And for our listeners out there, Ranger School is open to all different MOSs. So all different jobs across the Army. There's Air Force guys that go to the school. There's Marines that go to the school, etc. So Ranger School is open to a variety of different careers. In addition to that, Ranger School is somewhat of, of a requirement for an Army Ranger to go to before they're operational per se deployable per se. You will see a, a handful of young army rangers that have deployed without going to ranger school, but it's almost like you haven't got the rite of passage yet. Like your, your teammates aren't going to look at you with uh, as much respect if you haven't gone to ranger school. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens all the time. And I mean, I don't know the percentage now, but when I was there, you would see guys who were prior service, you know, E5s coming over, E6s coming over without their ranger tab. And you have a tab spec for so a specialist with a ranger tab telling that dude what to do and smoking him and that's just kind of how it is um so yeah it's definitely kind of a a badge of honor um typically i mean we we could send people there as privates so that that was kind of unique to the regiment for ranger school um but you're not getting your your e5 or even your E4 without going, like it's just not going to happen. And, and again, maybe that's changed. Again, I'm old, but um, for the most part, I, I highly doubt that has changed. So, yeah, it's definitely a rite of passage because it's another one of those you have to pass this. It's just another way to filter out right. those who can't do certain things. And um, I mean, you'll see, we had guys there that were there for 18 months and it's not an 18 month course. Let's put it that way. Um, I mean, it's 60 days, 62 days. I think if you, you go straight through or whatever, and then we do a one month pre ranger, um, which again may have changed by now, but, um, so yeah, it's literally, if you come back without it, you're not staying in regiment. So guys will stay there and stay there and stay there. So for our listeners out there, ranger school is not the course where you have to get through to get your beret. It's not a selection course. Ranger school is again, a course that is open to a variety of careers across the different branches of DOD, but Ranger school is a requirement for an army Ranger to progress on with their career. It is a requirement. So again, it's not in your training pipeline. You're, you're not going to go to Ranger school before you get your beret. You're going to go to Ranger school, hopefully shortly after you get ber your beret, after you've been assigned to your permanent duty station, whether that be second Ranger battalion, third Ranger battalion, or first Ranger battalion. But RASP, as it is known as now, RIP, whenever Nick was going through RASP, Ranger Assessment Selection Program, is an eight-week course where all of these students are desiring to be army rangers. All of the students are seeking to become army rangers. And if you graduate RASP, 
you get your tan beret and you get assigned to a ranger battalion and that's where you get your ranger scroll is that correct nick so you, so you get yes, your sir. scroll for being an army ranger you get your ranger tab for graduating ranger school and and i guess it's safe to say an army ranger so someone has a tan beret scrolled out doesn't really get taken super seriously until they've gone through ranger school and got their tab right? yeah and, and- I think it, it kind of does depend. And I mean, that's, that's generally for sure true. Um, but it, it's kind of like airborne school. There's only so many slots. So you do kind of get that guy who, man, he got there and deployment happened. So he's been there a hot minute and comes back. And then maybe he was third in line in his platoon and they only got two slots. So now he has another deployment. And I, I saw that happen a few times, but yeah, t- typically if you're there longer than maybe a year and haven't gotten it, you're, you're not doing something right. So, so Nick, you graduated selection, you got your tan beret. What was that experience like for you to finally be graduated? I mean, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't super emotional. I mean, it's, it's a big deal when you're like eight years old and you're like, I'm going to do this by the time I'm 19 and you get it. It's like, I did, did everything right apparently. And, and it's a very emotional, should be an emotional thing. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, and I think it's a big deal because of what you're about to do. It's not just about what you've done. It's now like I have signed up to do, do the thing and whatever that is, I may not know exactly right now, but I'm going to go to some places and do some bad things to bad people. And that's what I signed up for. And I have now earned the right to do that. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a super big day and you kind of become part of this, you know, this club, if you will, of the best of the best. And now you've laid out for yourself the opportunity to take it as far as you want. Do you want to go to another special missions unit beyond? Like now you've got that ball rolling and, and you've been given this opportunity to take it and run and some guys are cool just sitting back and, and doing what they have to doing their time and getting out. And then other guys end up being the ones you read about in books. So, um, so I think it's a, it's a really big thing. And if you can't understand that at the time, I, I hope that over time while you're there doing these things that people are sitting at home playing video games, pretending to do, um, it, it becomes uh, known to you how big of a deal it is sounds like it was a humbling experience to you because even though you're on cloud nine, you had just got your beret. You were also very aware of your next steps and Mm -hmm. the type of men that you were going to be standing at the fire with. Now it wasn't these dudes that you were in selection with it's real deal. Army Rangers that have been doing the job. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, when I kind of joined at the golden time, op tempo was extremely high. They'd been deploying for a fair, fair amount of time at that point. So there was no, ifs or whens it was this this is happening 100 percent. and if i go to first it's going to be this month if i go to second it's going to be this month like you knew um and i had i think two and a half about two and a half months from the time i graduated till i was on the first c17 overseas so you you also understand that trial by fire has just begun like rips hard and rips great but being a private in ranger battalion takes that to a whole new level. So especially when they're getting ready for a deployment. Um, so you don't really have time to sit back and, and, and kind of enjoy. You have to, what, what should I be doing now? And 
you know, as soon as you get boots on the ground, wherever, you know, whatever battalion you're going, that's what you need to be doing is what, what do I have to do? What, you know, what uniforms do I have to get? What condition do they have to be in? Who do I need to talk to? Who's my chain of command? You know, so there's, there's more work. It's never, there should never be a time you're without work. If there is, you're, you're probably doing something wrong. For listeners out there, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but you've got somewhere around what, 15 to 2,500 army Rangers. I know that's a big span, but I mean, where are we at right now? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, when I was in, it was about 2,500, um, plus admin and whatnot. And I know they, they were, we added, um, another company per battalion at the time. So probably up in that like 3000 ish ballpark now. Um, but they're also adding, you know, and that's, that's one thing I think I loved about the regiment so much is like, they never stopped growing. They never stopped bettering themselves. So we got our own canine elements. We got our own, uh, TSC elements for, you know, technology stuff now they have their own intel battalions so we have always wanted to and always worked towards becoming super self-sufficient so they're always adding these specialties um to to grow so i mean that number may even be 3500 4000 if you start adding in all these auxiliary positions as well Um, not just dudes kicking in the doors but it's it's been a really phenomenal thing like when i go back and visit friends at Fort Benning or whatever. And you, you see like what it has become. It, it's pretty, pretty ridiculous. It is impressive to see the evolution of lethality of the 75th Ranger Regiment as we go on to this modern battle space. And for our listeners out there, again, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you've got around 3,000, 3,500 Army Rangers in 2022, let's say, okay? And those Rangers are distributed mostly among three Ranger battalions. You have 2nd Battalion, if you're lucky, up in (laughs) Fort Lewis McCord, which is up in Washington, kind of near Tacoma, some of the most beautiful country in the world. And then you've got 1st Battalion at good old Savannah, Georgia, which is about a, what, 30, 45 minutes off the coast of Georgia, kind of in the swamp area. Yeah, they're pretty much right on the beach. And then you've got good old 3rd Battalion right there at Fort Benning, Georgia, just in case you didn't get enough of Fort Benning while Mm -hmm. you were at Airborne RASP and boot camp. Yeah, and that's also a regimental headquarters, so you're you're sitting right at the base of the flagpole with – with all the people you don't want watching you on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> Sounds like fun, Nick. So how do I get stationed at second battalion, man? Do I have to be able to do backflips or win a popularity yeah. contest or, or well, crush the ASVAB? How do I go to second bat, dude? I think there was actually a backflip involved. There was definitely a <laughs> table flip. Um, so uh, when, when I went through, it was unknown, actually, what they were going to do from class to class as it's far draft. as... Yep. Um, so they basically take you all and they took us all into a room, a classroom and you all sit down or, or whatever. And I was actually the class leader at the time. So I was the last one in, into the room, standing in the back of the room and no one knew what was going on. So no one could really stack the, the deck in their favor. Not that we would really have known how, um, but then they were like, okay, if, you know, first battalion is getting X number, third battalion is getting this, second battalion is getting this. And we're like, 
okay, now what? Like, are they just going to tell us like, you're going here, you're going there, so on and so forth. And I'm like, man, if they just go from front to back, I am, I am out of luck, <laughs> like standing literally the furthest I could in the room. So they would literally go, all right, first battalion, first eight. And man, like people were jumping and punching each other. I mean, it was just an absolute chaos. And I was like, oh, they're going to call second next. So I started kind of trying to skirt my way up to the front a little bit and pretending like I wanted to go to first just in case they were like, no, you're not going. I was like, oh, no, I really wanted to. So you kind of still have to act like you want to go to all of them. Um, but then when they, they yelled second, I know a buddy of mine and I, who both wanted to go there, looked at each other and we just flipped a table in the back and ran pretty much full linebacker, however we could to get to the front of the room. And I think we took six to second battalion and I was like third or fourth and he was fifth. I think he was right behind me. So that's kind of how that that evolution worked out for us. Um, but I know at the time it, it was always different when no one really knew how they were going to do it. So you had to flip a table and almost get in a scrap with your boys, but you made it to second bat up in the beautiful Washington state. Now, mm-hmm. Nick, you always dreamed of, of being not just a ranger, but a sniper. So yep. on a ranger, on a ranger platoon. So a, a team that's actually operating in the field. Can you tell us some of the different specialties that you're going to see besides a sniper? Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, they're, they're constantly adding, uh, jobs every, seems like every year now to, to really increase their, their productivity on the battlefield, um, from a self-sustaining standpoint. But, uh, we had, uh, canine mortar machine gun teams snipers uh tse which is kind of like your technical guys who are working with different stay behind devices and, and other stuff um you know you had your rtos your radio guys your forward observers your fo's um so man medics so i think that's eight different specialties right there that just off the top of my head um and I don't think I'm missing any, but I very well could be. But so, you know, you got 40 guys roughly in a platoon, platoon size element going out on target. And they got eight different specialties, either attached or, or platoon internal. So um, it's, I mean, it's the Swiss army knife. Uh, there's a reason we get attached to other special mission units is because we bring stuff that they don't necessarily have team internal or want to dedicate team internal. And um, it's been an awesome thing to see the amount of responsibilities that the regiment has been given. Uh, We took over Afghanistan as a battle space when I was there. So it's like, Hey, (laughs) Afghanistan is yours. Do it, do with it as you please. Um, And that was, that was kind of the, you guys have made it, uh, moment for regiment was everyone's like, Oh, you guys just do blocking positions for Delta. And I'm like, no, we alternate main effort with Delta now. And, you know, we run Afghanistan. So I appreciate your candor and naivety, but that's, that's not the case anymore. Um, yeah. So it, it's pretty cool to see all the things that they can do. We have our own support, you know, echo company support so they do all sorts of vehicle maintenance and and whatnot so literally a regiment a regimental battalion can go anywhere in the country anywhere in the world conduct training or real world operations by themselves and not need anyone else 
And for our listeners out there, Nick brought up Afghanistan. You may have heard that we lost the war in Afghanistan. First of all, we, we had no problem invading Afghanistan. Okay. We had bases all over the place, troops everywhere, technology, air power. Okay. Where we could not follow through with was occupying Afghanistan and establishing democracy in Afghanistan. Those are very, very different things. Okay. So the American military has been and always will be the most powerful force on the planet, regardless of what happened in Afghanistan with our withdrawal. What are your thoughts on that, Nick? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that statement. Um, it was unfortunate to see for all the all the reasons people have been quite vocal about, not just the, uh, you know, the loss of lives immediately uh, occurring during the exfil, I guess we could, could call it by definition, um, the shenanigans that, that were us leaving Afghanistan, but uh, also the loss of life you know, in the 20 years leading up to that. And uh, it's not just like loss of life on the ground over there either that, and I think that gets kind of misconstrued and overlooked, but people lost lives at home. They lost time with families. They lost family members who passed away while they were deployed or training or doing X, Y, and Z, you know, relationships, so on and so forth. I mean, there's a lot of sacrifices made um, over the course of that conflict that, it's, it's very hard to not look at as if it was for not um, just based on the way we kind of up and left. So um, yeah, frustrating to say the least, had some very long emotional conversations with a lot of guys during that time period. But um, you know, I just tried to remind them that we did what we were asked to do to the best of our ability at the time. And that's exactly what we would do again. We can't control everything that's done up here right we can only do what we can do and i mean we we slayed it so uh so be proud of that it's like you know it's like a team like a high school football team right like you won the the championship ring you won states you won states the team after won states you know 10 10 years in a row you guys won states and then all of a sudden you don't and it's like well that doesn't discredit everything you did that doesn't discredit your team or the 10 years after um, you can't look at it like that. Well said, Nick. And since we're already talking about Afghanistan, you had mentioned earlier that within a couple months of getting stationed at second battalion, you were getting deployed. What's mm-hmm. the deal with that? Yeah, I was. Uh, so my first, <clears throat> my first handful of deployments were uh, to Iraq actually, but yeah, I got, <laughs> got to battalion and went through the whole in processing uh, rigmarole, if you will. And a friend of mine was actually in uh, second battalion. Basically we did a handoff. Like he left, I got there. Um, a guy from my hometown that I had actually talked into going to regiment because I was like, if you're going to join the army, this is what you got to do. Um, and he's like, yeah, you need to go to, you know, third platoon Bravo company. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go to third platoon Bravo company and do what I can. And, uh, so they get us all in the hallway and, you know, what platoon do you want to go to? I said it and they kind of do their inspection and look at you and they're like, all right, cool. You can come third platoon. And I get up there and like, yeah, you're in weapons squad. I was like, really? (laughs) Like 150 pounds and I'm going to be in weapons squad. Awesome. This is going to be terrible. Um, So I was an, an assistant gunner for my first deployment. And I think it was 11 days after I got to battalion, I did my first jump 
So I'm jumping with like 1800 rounds of belted 762 extra barrels M4. I'm like, this weighs easily two thirds of what I weigh. Um, your your just, last jump was like at the, the ultra condensed army airborne yeah. school, like a year before that. And right. here you and are it, doing it the real deal. Yeah. And it was, you know, a company size night combat, full combat jump. And I'm like, all right, this is, this is it. This is, this is what I signed up for, even though I kind of immediately regret this platoon decision. But, um, so yeah, I deployed and, um, so I was a top gunner of a Humvee an up armor Humvee, my first deployment. And I'm like, well, this probably doesn't end well <laughs> just standing up here. And, uh, you know, at that time, like, so you don't just still... start off as a sniper. You get, you got to work your no. way up there. Yeah. So I did, uh, I did the one deployment as a, as a machine gun assistant gunner, um, on a machine gun team, which when you go from home, home station to deploy it, obviously that, that transitions a little bit in role so that they become top gunners on the Humvees and whatnot. And uh, came home from that and went pretty much right to ranger school, which I was fortunate enough, enough to get a pretty streamlined uh, timeline there. Uh, went through ranger school, came back, and they hadn't had a sniper selection in, in a couple of years to my knowledge at that time. And they announced that they were doing another one for, for snipers and reconnaissance platoon. So I was like, oh, well, this is my only chance maybe for a couple of years last thing I really want to do is put a ruck on my back right now, but I guess we're going to do this. So, um, so yeah, about two or three weeks after I got back from ranger school, I, I went to the sniper selection and, um, yeah, did, did all I could to, to make sure that that happened. And it's a pretty cool process. Um, it's kind of an unknown process to, to people because they don't do it. They didn't do it at the time very often, um, but basically you just kind of sign up, you fill out a little sheet and it's like, I want to do this. This is why I think I'd be good at it. So on and so forth. And they're like, yeah, great. Uh, get in line. So <laughs> I signed up, I, I kind of wanted to do the, uh, the sniper reconnaissance thing anyways. So I was going to be happy either way with either, either job, but obviously I, I really wanted to go to the sniper platoon. Um, so for a couple of weeks, you just perform all different types of tasks, physical, mental, all different types of evaluations. Uh, basically, they kind of see how well you can do getting taught a task and how easily you can uh, retain it and also put it back into practice. So um, I, I fortunately did very well with the, the sniper-related task and got picked up on the platoon, and the rest is, as they say, history. Now, were you were you like practicing shooting on the weekends? Um, no. were, so, I mean, you're a natural shooter, Nick. I mean, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what goes into to you being as effective as you are? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say I, I kind of naturally, um, naturally took to shooting and, and absorbed the fundamentals and understood what, what actually was required to make, you know, a very, uh, well-aimed shot, if you will, and, and make it repeatable. Um, but the biggest thing is just being coachable. Like I wasn't born with sniper DNA as cool as I think that would be. Um, you know, someone's like, man, you're, you're born to be a sniper. Like, well, I don't think that's a thing. Like you can genetically be born with advantages to do certain tasks, but 
uh, I just approached everything with an open mind. Like this guy right here, he's a sniper. He currently does this. I'm going to let him teach me what he knows and I'm going to latch on to it and I'm going to put it into practice and that should work because he's doing the job. So uh, I just tried to be a sponge and, and talk to guys who were currently doing it and what schools they went to and what they learned and picked up from there and um, just really put all that into practice. So I would say, you know, not just as it pertains to doing a certain job, but the military as a whole, like being coachable is everything. I mean, there's a reason why an 18 year old kid can leave high school and then within a year be jumping out of a plane and walking an unknown distance to a target that they have plotted the point to conduct a military operation and leave. Like you have to be very coachable to be able to do those tasks in such a short amount of time. If you're just a rock and can't absorb anything, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, and, and I think that was kind of the, the one characteristic that I ensured that I always put to the forefront was just being coachable. You know, sometimes it's hard for somebody who's naturally good at something, even if you are coachable, which means you were taught something and you took it in. It can be hard for somebody who's natural to be able to describe why they are successful at something. But you're a sniper instructor now. So, Nick, I got to ask you as an instructor, what are a few tips for our listeners out there to hit their target? Uh, Put your ego aside and be coachable. Um, I, I always explain to people, I'm like, when they get mad because they miss, it, it's kind of hard for me not to laugh sometimes because I, I'll say to them, well, why did you think you should hit it? Do you think you should hit every target you shoot at every single time? No one does that. It's just, it's not realistic. You're sending a piece of metal through the air by an explosion and telling it to come down at a certain point. That's in the grand scheme of things, there's, there's a lot to that and a lot of variables. So the only variable you can really work on and remove is yourself. So if you can remove yourself and do things consistently and correctly every single time, you're giving yourself the best chance for success. And you can't do that if you have an ego that says, I already know everything or I'm doing this right. Well, if you're doing it right, then why isn't it working? And sometimes people just need to be bluntly asked that. So if they can set that aside and whether they know exactly what you're talking about or not, listen to you, um, or you can kind of present it to them in a manner maybe that they see it differently than they have before. Um, Analogies tend to work really well or relating it to something that they do in their day to day. Um, Then that's, I think, where you, you start to see success and the light bulb come on for people. But if, if they come in closed-minded, then, I mean, it's, it's just kind of not going to happen. And as far as being coachable, what are some elements that would make you more successful at hitting your target? Is it, is it being able to, to breathe or being steady or understanding ballistics? What are some mm-hmm. of the things that, that you recommend? Yeah, it definitely um, it's definitely a progression. You need to start with the basics. The basics are fundamentals. If you can always resort back and they're fundamentals because they're required for success. They are fundamentally required for success. 
if your body position is completely out of whack and you pull the trigger like an idiot and you're not breathing so you're hyperventilating like if you're doing any of those things your your likelihood of success is pretty much gone um so you have to be able to do those and do those at a level of like subconscious competence like we breathe involuntarily well there's certain tasks that you need to do shooting involuntarily uh pulling the trigger needs to be involuntarily correct every time we can't be worried about are you pulling the trigger differently every single time because you're never going to get consistency or repeatability um so obviously being able to do all of that but i think the biggest thing that a lot of especially in the precision shooting world a lot of people try to get ahead of themselves well there's a kestrel and there's this tool and then there's this atmospheric and then there's this it's like let's start with fundamentals and then let's start with seeing wind and then let's start going out a little bit further and let's start with you being able to range the target by yourself see the wind make an accurate engagement then let's go a little further and then start adding things it's the people who want to go from zero to a hundred and not really worry about the in-between that tend to struggle you have to be willing to say i am good and and satisfied for now being able to hit out to three four hundred yards on my own completely on my own no help from you because it's like i tell people i can get you to hit a thousand yards in 20 minutes if you do exactly what i say but i'm not always there i'm not always in your back pocket so what good is that for you you need to be self-sufficient and reliable and have reliable skills that you can do by yourself because otherwise what's the point so i'm not teaching you to shoot with me spotting for you i'm teaching you to perform an engagement from start to finish on your own and these are the things along the way that you have to do well said so you you'll give somebody the concepts you'll give somebody the fundamentals the techniques but they've got to be responsible for going and applying them practicing them committing to them over time consistently to where they really sink in and become natural mm-hmm yeah. And I mean, I always ask people at the beginning of the class, cause it kind of tells me where their, their mindset is. I'll be like, what are you looking to get out of this class? I want to hit a thousand yards. All right, cool. Let's go upstairs and I'll send you home in about 15 minutes. I'll get you to hit a thousand yards. You can head home. We'll call it a day. And they kind of look at me and I'm like, I mean, you, you just said you want to hit a thousand yards. Now, do you want to hit a thousand yards consistently on your own? Cause that's a whole other ball game. So, um, so it kind of gives you a good gauge on, on where their mindset's at coming into it. And, you know, is it superficial satisfaction that they're looking for, or is it truly learning a skill that they can put into action over and over again? And to rewind, you passed the sniper selection course, obviously, what was that like? And then what kind of formal training did you do afterwards for sniper school? I, I truly, truly enjoyed the selection process. Um, it it was physically, I guess, relatively demanding. It was nowhere near RIP or or anything of that or the sustained duration of Ranger School. Um, there was obviously physical task, but I loved that there was like classes. Like they teach you a task and then maybe that day, maybe the next day, somewhere along the way, you had to put it back into practice, whether setting up a radio and making a call or you know, medical or call, call for fire, whatever the case was, you were just learning new tasks. And I love that, that portion of it. Um, 
because you know you always want to be a better tool in the toolbox and if i can do more tasks then i'm a better tool in the toolbox um so i really really enjoyed that and you know that's that's what i enjoyed about going on to like the um formal sniper courses as well whether they were um, civilian or military whichever the case is is they always took you through another another level of learning different tasks um putting them into practice so yeah that was that was definitely the most enjoyable part of that and the formal sniper school that you went to was that at fort bragg the, the standard sniper school I was fortunate enough to go to uh, to both, so I actually went to the um, the, the regular U.S. Army uh, sniper course at Fort Benning, and then I also went to the at the time it was called the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course at Fort Bragg. Um, it's since been renamed to the Special Forces Sniper Course, but um, so I, I was very fortunate to be able to go to both of those. Um, and at the time, that was that was pretty much the first time that happened in our platoon in a really long time, just from deployment schedules and, and allocation of those slots. Um, but yeah, so it was nice because the, the conventional course is very traditional sniper based. You're stocking, you're ranging targets and just very, very traditional task. Whereas the special operations course was also kind of surveillance based camera work, um, you know, night shooting, urban stocks loopholes so it was very kind of like the more modern twist the the special operations twist if you will um so it was was a very very cool to be able to have both schoolhouses um in, in my toolbox if you will nick how does one so some of us have seen these videos obviously you've you've done this firsthand but some of us have seen these videos where Snipers are hitting their target from like a mile away with a, a Barrett 50 cal. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? What type of calculations are being done? Is there some luck in there? Is it all skill? Is it math? Can you tell us what goes into those calculations to make a shot like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I would use the term, term luck necessarily because, I mean, now if you were to sit down brand new weapon you've never fired before throw an optic on it first round in the chamber and send it and it hits that's 100% luck no question about that Um, but if it's one of your weapon systems that you're familiar with and you've gone to the range and you've built data for and and you've kind of built this database of previous engagements um, for it then you're, you're definitely making a very educated guess now it may you may not have shot that exact distance before but you've shot probably a bunch of stuff along the way and now with all the tools we have now there's ballistic calculators and whatnot that will definitely give you a a number that should work Um, of course there's still tons of variables that go into play um, for that number to work but yeah if you were to sit down with a barrett that you've shot before and had some data on and you can make a good wind call, um, which is ten- tends to be where things go haywire is if your wind call is good or bad. Um, there, there's no reason why you can't get a first round hit. And, and if you don't get a first round hit, there's no excuse to not get a second round hit because you or your spotter, depending on the situation, um, should be able to see that impact or that bullet trace and make a correction off of that. Um, first round hits are cool, but 
man, it, you better make a second round hit if you don't make a first. So, um, so yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, but typically the first time that you shoot something like that, isn't the, the first time you've shot that, that specific weapon system. So you have some kind of basis of knowledge and familiarity with it. Right. And Nick, you went through all of this formal training can you tell us if you're comfortable with it about how maybe you were able to use some of this in the future when, when you actually got deployed as a Ranger? Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely use it because you're, you're now in these environments where like I felt comfortable. I, I, there was a handful of times where I had to actually build a loophole and, and shoot through a loophole and um, you know, you've done it. So it's familiar. There's no, man, I hope this works. It's, I know this will work if I do things correctly and I know the correct answer because I've already done it. Um, so it's a, it's an encouraging thing because, you know, the, the role of the sniper isn't just like, well, I'm going to take long shots and whatnot. And, and that's neat, but you're a lot of the times the eyes for the assault force and you're providing overwatch for them to ensure their safety as they move across open areas or areas that, um, they, they don't necessarily have the ability to provide themselves with great cover. Um, so to be able to be in those types of positions, um, and feel confident that you're going to make that shot. If it, if the time arises is it's awesome. I mean, there's really no better feeling than that. So all those courses do is provide you the opportunity to put this stuff into practice, these formulas, or, you know, whether it's camouflage techniques or movement techniques, you've done it. You've seen what works. You've seen what doesn't work and you didn't have to do it when you don't have room for air. So doing recon or the lingo for our listeners out there would be recce work is a big part of being a sniper. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and obviously your area of operations will kind of drive and dictate how much of that you're doing. But honestly, the, the sniper itself can be also very proactive in that. Like if I was on a target, I would always try and provide as much feedback as I could to the, to the assault force, especially if I was out there, you know, hours ahead of them or whatever the case may have been for that specific uh, operation, whether it's finding breach points on the building or, you know, I see something up in this high ground. I can't tell exactly what it is because it's dark out and whatnot, but there's something up there that I don't like can the ISR platform, the pred feed or whatever, take a look at it. And then that provides them a little bit of safety. Um, So as long as you're always looking for work, you have to be a combat multiplier. I'm not just like doing it because man, special operations sniper sounds pretty cool. Um, You have a job and a very important job. And the job is to be a combat multiplier for whoever you're working with. Well said, Nick. Can you tell us a little bit more about what being a combat multiplier means? Well, so the the, the common, uh, especially as it pertains to snipers, is they're the most psychologically devastating tool on the battlefield because in, you know, perfect traditional world, you're not seen, but you're taking out enemy while not being seen. So um it's really hard to not be scared of something that you can't see, but is killing your people. So psychologically being on the battlefield is is pretty devastating to anyone who's looking to disrupt what your, you know, your guys are doing, but you just bring a skill set, not only as a person, but also the equipment that you have with you that the 
platoon that you're attached to or whoever you're attached to doesn't have. I have the ability to look a lot further away and identify things, or I have the ability to tell you how big something is, how small something is, how far away it is, um, and, and stuff of that nature. So you're bringing a tool set and a skill set to the platoon that they don't already possess. So you're multiplying their, um, their lethality or their ability to conduct their operation. Well said. And, and one may argue that air power could be uh, the ultimate uh, psychological uh, damager to the enemy. But you look at a sniper and a sniper is making a very precise hit on a human. They are not necessarily blowing up or destroying an entire square or, or an entire building with large ordnance. It's a very precision strike. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not just humans. I mean, there's radio communications. You should take out a cell tower or some kind of power source, or if the assault force is hitting a building and you shoot out the light when they go to breach, well, now you've just enabled them to use their night vision capabilities to their advantage uh, versus being on an even playing field with whoever may be on the inside. So those are those look for work kind of things. Hey, before you go to breach, I'll take out that light for you um, and, and give you the kind of the upper hand. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fun role, but it, it's a very important role that, um, again, it's, it's what you do with it. You can sit back and sit on a rooftop or up on a hill and just kind of hang out until mission's over, or you can, you can find work. Well said, Nick, uh, for listeners out there, Nick is a humble individual. Um, but Nick, I got to ask, man, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a mission or some type of story when you were over there? Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll say one. Um, and just because it involves probably one of my best friends to this day, but um, we infilled kind of ahead of the platoon and my team leader at the time made a decision to put us up on a rooftop that wasn't exactly the tallest is, building. Is this that, Afghanistan, Nick? This is Iraq. This this is in Iraq. Around what year yes, was this at? So this would have been 2007 because okay. I was a team leader at the end of 2007. So it was end of 2006 into 2007. Nick, how old um, are you, man? You look like you're about 28 years old, but you're you were in Iraq in 2007, the year I graduated <laughs> high school, brother. I'm uh, I'm regenerating. I'll actually be uh, 37 in July. 37 going on 28. Okay, so yeah. we're yeah. Well, it's funny because if you look at the pictures when I had like the massive uh, moosh beard overseas, I look about 53. So um yeah it's amazing what a razor will do right that a boy just shave that face up and you're good to go so all right nick <laughs> yeah. my bad for no no you. you're in so, Iraq, uh, you're on the rooftop yeah so we get on this rooftop and uh quickly realize that it's definitely not the uh the tallest building in the neighborhood um and pretty much immediately started taking contact um we did on our position which really sucks because you know they see you exactly if they're putting effective fire on you um, anyways, so we, we were able to kind of, uh, dull the attack, if you will, with some, some well-aimed shots, but, uh, the assault force kind of moved in a little quicker than they had wanted to because we came under contact and a buddy of mine, best friend of mine, actually, he was my senior private when I first got to battalion, which is basically like your mother. He's responsible for making sure you're not ate up. 
he uh, was running a machine gun team as a team leader at the time. And he put us themselves in a blocking position. And I was kind of looking over their position down the road. And I saw a light from a door open inside of a courtyard, just inside of where they were. So it was like their position, a wall, the courtyard. And I just out of the corner of my night vision saw a bright light. Because as you know, when you open up a door or turn on a light under night vision, it's like insanely bright. So I see that and I see a guy run out. So I kind of like oriented over the top of him. And then about 15, 20 seconds later, the guy came up over the wall with an AK and was about to, to rain some hate down on him and his two, uh, two machine gunners that were there. And uh, I eliminated the threat, as we will politically correct say, um, over the top of the wall. Um, so it, it kind of was one of those like, this is what I'm here for and I'm glad I could do it for you kind of moments. You saved, so. your, saved your buddy's life. You did your job. Yeah. There's really nothing more to it than that. Um, yeah. uh, Nick, um, I got to ask, man, when it when it came down to to that moment and, and you kind of going back to your training, um, how, how confident did you feel in that shot? Like, did you know, like, yeah, before even, even taking the yeah. shot, like I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to successfully hit this target. You know, it was one of those, uh, I don't really recall even making or thinking of that being a, a thing. Like I was taking that shot either way because it had to be taken. Um, but yeah, I, I felt very confident as a whole, pretty much my entire career that, if I took a shot, it was, it was hitting what I was aiming at. So, so you uh, thought that, that you were that well no prepared exception. for that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, and, and that's the thing, that's the one thing I will say to the listeners. Um, if you want to be prepared as best as you can for whatever you're going to encounter, special operations will do it. Like you train and train and train. So if you're looking to just go to a place, earn a cool badge and be able to say I'm an X, Y, or Z, it ain't that because when you get there, that's when it begins. And if you find a time when you guys aren't training, I'll be shocked. Like the training never ends because the mission never ends and you don't know when it's going to happen. Like, oh yeah, we're home on, on leave right now. Well, something just kicked off in Syria. So we need you back and you're leaving tomorrow. So yeah, I, I felt always felt confident, not just with myself, but with all the people I deployed with, I never had a moment where I didn't feel confident with the guys around me. So you, you save your teammates life in that moment. Um, how did the mission progress on from there? Yeah, it was kind of business as usual after that. Um, <laughs> I mean, they, uh, they don't like prolonged fights very, very often, especially when they're, when they're losing pretty handedly. So um, I, I think they took the lessons from their few buddies uh, who decided to pick a fight with a giant and kind of go recluse. But yeah, it, uh, it kind of dulled out after that, but it, it started off like a, a cat on fire. And Nick, you, you ended up obviously coming back stateside after that. Uh, how long did you, did you spend as a ranger? It was about eight years. Um, just shy of eight years, I think. Um, Solid time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I would have, uh, I, I was in, in the process of going to a, a special missions unit and, um, I had turned down my E7 spot a little bit. I didn't want to go back to the line 
uh, admittedly, I, I loved being in snipers and was uh, very fortunate to spend as much time as I did there. It's kind of uncommon. And uh, yeah, so I was looking to kind of leave, potentially leave regiment and go to a different, uh, different home but I didn't have enough retainability on my contract and they didn't want to extend my contract to allow me to do that. They wanted me to reenlist for a, a full boat and we uh, agreed to disagree. So, well, you I had to take out. care of yourself, Nick, you had to do what, do what yeah. was best for, for your dreams and, and your goals. And for our listeners out there, many of you are focused on the, the very um, nearsighted goal ahead of you of training physically to past selection and get selected for the special operations career of your choice. But what comes with that is being an operator. And what comes with being an operator is constantly being pushed into promotion and leadership positions and upgrading your skill level. And I tell you what, this is kind of universal in any type of job, military or in the civilian life. The higher up the ranks you move, the less fun you get to have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're going to get paid more money, but that money better directly equivalent to a better lifestyle because you're not going to have more fun on the job. That's for sure. You're going to have more responsibility and higher levels of duty. And there's something special about that. There's something fun about that. No doubt about it. But just like Nick said, part of him getting promoted to E7 meant going back to the line and doing something different. Yeah. And I kind of also disagreed um, to it to a pretty, I felt pretty passionately about, um, the disagreement that I had with it is I didn't feel as though someone myself who had been in snipers for like a little over six years at that point should have been going back to the, the line to take a platoon from someone who had grown up in the platoon, team leader in the platoon, squad leader in the platoon. It's his family. He knows the inner workings of every single, you know, protocol and operating procedure and everything of that platoon, because that's where he's grown up. And I didn't feel as though I was best suited to step in and now be telling him how to do his job. Um, I just, I didn't think that was the right move. So yeah. So I fell on that, fell on that sword and died on that hill. And Nick, you ended up doing some pretty cool stuff though, whenever you got out, um, obviously working for a three-letter agency in support of another three-letter agency. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your time after you got out of the Army as a GRS operator? Um, you know, it was probably the best thing I, I possibly could have done. Um, it was a great way to transition out of the military while still being in that world, right? So um, I was still a civilian by definition. So when I wasn't deployed doing that job, I could do whatever I wanted. Um, as a civilian, I didn't have to answer to battalion or the army or get recalled or do anything stupid inventories. Um, so you're still a civilian, but you still get to do all the cool stuff and, you know, even cooler stuff to to some degree. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it was a phenomenal way to transition lives from military life to civilian life. Um, I, I absolutely loved the job. Um, but as with everything, it's, it's about time and place. And I caught the tail end of a really good time before it transitioned into a slightly less good time. 
Um, so yeah, I cut sling load when, uh, when that started to <laughs> go the other direction and, uh, became a complete civilian to a degree, but that's when I started doing the instructor, uh, instructor roles. And, you know, I really wouldn't change that for the, the world. I'm fortunate to be able to keep doing it and I'm fortunate to have people that are still active doing it. So I can still learn from them as the world is ever changing with technology and, and, way everyone's training um so yeah it's it was a very i i have to use the term lucky to a degree because it's it's all timing and and trying to set yourself up for success but um but yeah i've been very very blessed to have uh be able to lead the life i have Spoken like a true GRS operator, Nick, <laughs> only a true operator would be able to take that and turn it over to, to saying he's grateful for his life. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, how, that's how you deviate from, from talking about your, your agency. Well, I'll rewind it and ask you this, Nick. Smoke um, and mirrors. <laughs> smoke and mirrors. <laughs> most, most folks have only heard about GRS from mm -hmm. uh, the famous movie 13 Hours about the Benghazi attack on the U.S. Embassy. Um, can you tell us? exactly or, or a little bit about what is GRS? What's the global response staff, man? Yeah. So um, responsible for, you know, on the surface level and by definition responsible for the safety and security of uh, our intelligence community uh, case officers as they're out conducting their, uh, their duties and responsibilities. So um, there's a phenomenal quote in 13 hours when he says uh, you're in my world now. And, and that's kind of the, the running joke, but it's also very, very serious when it goes from being an intelligence issue and intelligence responsibility to a security one. Uh, that's when we would step in and, and run the show. Um, so every aspect of a, a, a meet with, for an asset or whatever the case may be, we would conduct the planning and execution of that. But uh, so that's the, the 30,000 foot view general responsibilities, um, obviously. There's tangential things that would come up that we would have to do, um, but basically anything that required security or some kind of uh, tactical expertise, we would we would conduct those for the uh, for the agency. Spoken perfectly, Nick. I won't uh, ask any more <laughs> questions or or go any further into detail in that. I know your hands are tied on talking about that agency. So Nick, after you got done with that, uh, you, you did a few different things, but you ended up starting a company. It's mm -hmm. always super exciting for me when I see my special operations brothers get into business as I did and start a company. So what came first, man? Did you start the company bef before you did your time with the GRS? You started afterwards? I mean, tell us a little bit um, about your company. It's kind of during. So um, by, uh, by requirements for tax purposes and whatnot, it was always easier to start a company. Right. Um, and so the, the name was established, but what it was going to do was not necessarily because I wasn't really a hundred percent sure. Um, but admittedly, once I got closer to the conclusion that I was ready to tie a bow on, on that, I, I knew I would probably still keep doing something in this world. And um, I wasn't sure if it was going to be geared towards military law enforcement or civilians. So I kind of constructed a structure in a way where I had the, the ability to do either or. Um, and it's probably about 50-50 now, which is, is a good, good mix. And, you know, I do enjoy teaching civilians uh, to a degree. I would never teach a civilian a sniper course per se, because 
I'll be honest, if a civilian needs to know how to construct a hide site and wear a ghillie suit uh, effectively, I probably don't need to know why, but I don't want to have a certificate hanging in their office when they get raided with my name on it either. So, um, so yeah, there's definitely a line of delineation there on, on what gets taught to both sides of the house. But yeah, I've been fortunate to be able to consult on some things and do some security uh, penetration testing and all sorts of stuff that, you know, if we get to use the skills that you've learned and earned over the years, it's always a, always a good day. It's nice when you can pass that stuff along. So. For our listeners out there, Nick's company is called Dark Corner Concepts. And that, is that an LLC, Nick, a limited liability corporation? So you got yes. Dark Corner Concepts, LLC. Look him up on Instagram. This is Nick's personal Instagram as well, what he does his personal stuff of. It's dark underscore corner underscore concepts. Give Nick a follow on Instagram. Reach out to him. Tell him you enjoyed the podcast. Say hello. Sign up for one of his courses. So, Nick, whenever you first started, uh, maybe your vision for this company mm-hmm. was you're going to start an LLC. You're going to use your expertise and your experience to do some consulting for maybe private organizations and as well as uh, law enforcement, as well as military. Uh, do some courses out there. Um, and for our listeners out there, one of the one of the things that that Nick is most well known for is he actually hosts a sniper competition. Nick, can you tell us a little bit more about your sniper competition, brother? So uh, as with everything, for the most part, it's, uh, you know, we, we take an experience and we either build upon it if it was great or go back to the drawing board if it wasn't so great. And I happened to attend a not so great sniper competition as a competitor one year, um, a few years back. And admittedly we left early because it was so terrible and on the way home i said you know f this i'm just going to do my own because that's kind of how our cloth uh, operates is well if we don't like something we're going to just do it on our own and try and do it better so the the real world sniper challenge was born um the name kind of came out of like this one was not remotely close to real world tasks so I'm going to take it to the exact extreme and just name it that. Um, so that's how the name came to be. Um, we hosted sniper challenge. Yeah, we hosted. Um, so I also run a, a training facility in Texas that uh, three, about three years ago. Now I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to help design and they offered me the opportunity to just run it. So it kind of all works out really, really well to be able to bring the two together. Um, but yeah, the competition ends up being 97% military active duty shooters. So it's kind of a neat, neat thing because they have the international sniper competition and they have the USASOC, the special operations sniper competition, which just rolled, was just wrapped up. And then the uh, big army sniper competition kicks off soon. So it's kind of cool because you get all these teams together who have already probably competed at one point against another. So it's, it's a really good way for them to like hash it out again. But um, it's fun for me because we tend to get a lot of uh, the schoolhouse instructors coming out. So we have like an instructor team from the Navy schoolhouse, the Marine schoolhouse, the Army National Guard, the Army, regular Army schoolhouse, the special operations. So all these instructors get to kind of compete and see who really rises to the top. Um, but what I like about it is I just kind of do what I want. I don't 
worry about range control. I don't worry about, oh, well, command doesn't want us to do X, Y, or Z. Like, I'm just going to test you however I want to test you. And um, it tends to be a pretty, pretty fun event. So definitely the the bittersweet thing about the being a civilian contractor or, or a government contractor is definitely being able to, to skip those loopholes and making things a little bit easier, but then not having that big DOD budget. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing as a civilian, when you look back and you're like, man, I had a lot of really expensive stuff. Like when you buy night vision and then all of a sudden now you're like, I'm going to put this in the padded container. It came in because if I break it, I can't just go down to supply and get a new one. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're, you know, we, we bring out a little bird every year for the sniper competition. Um, so now you're paying for blade time versus the one sixtieth paying for blade time. Um, so yeah, it definitely adds, uh, elements to the planning process, but, um, I've been very, 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 uh, well supported by some companies in the, in the industry and they really show up, um, not just with prizes for the shooters, but, uh, helping make the event happen. So, well, congratulations uh, on this new opportunity for you and, and your company essentially to manage this range in Texas. I know it's a, a big opportunity. Um, and for our listeners out there, Nick and I are brainstorming some ideas right now on running a formal SOCOM athlete course out there on Nick's range and using his expertise to put something together, a little bit of a land nav course as well as a um, weapon safety and uh, kind of a marksmanship 101 course. So we'll yeah. be putting more information out on that. We're super excited to put this together. So Nick, what are you doing now, my man? Just managing the property out there, continuing to do some stuff with Dark Corner. I mean, what's the, what's the normal day in the life of Nick Goff right now? <laughs> so a, a day kicks off at 4 a.m. still because, well, oh I've always, always been that way. We'll always be that way uh, no matter what time I go to sleep. So um, I try to go to bed like a 95 year old at like 70, 7 o'clock, but it doesn't usually work out. Um, wake up. I, uh, I still work for a firearms manufacturer doing some product development and whatnot. So go do that, do a little bit there, try to get some training sessions in during the day, come home, do a little bit more planning for the, the sniper competition or whatever classes for the upcoming quarter and whatnot. Um, more training sessions, hopefully in the afternoon, if possible, uh, more work at night and then rinse and repeat. But, uh, like I said, at the very beginning, I split my time between September and May about even between here and Texas. So, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of travel involved, um, you know, on a regular basis. Nick, any last minute advice as we close up here to our listeners, knowing that they are trying to accomplish what you have accomplished? Yeah, I'm actually going to address something that I've had some pretty lengthy conversations about with with guys who are still in active duty teaching positions and whatnot. But I would say now our our military, um, especially special operations, I mean, I'll use 2nd Battalion for an example. I mean, they have state of the art everything for physical training and strength and conditioning coaches and this, that, and the other. And there's more knowledge out there now for fitness than there ever has been um, ever in history. So I don't doubt that, you know, fitness wise, we have the ability and, and probably have currently the fittest or potentially fittest military that, that you could have. And when I say military, I'm speaking specifically special operations. Um, but 
I feel there's still a missing link for those who get uncomfortable when uncomfortable. So it's great if you can squat 650 and run a four minute mile and that's all fantastic. But if I can't wake you up in an hour and say, you're going to go do a 30 kilometer movement through the mountains of Afghanistan, good luck. And you can't mentally suck it up and overcome that. Um, it, it doesn't matter how good a shape you're in. So I'll actually use an example from the sniper competition last year. I actually briefed that movement day one would be about seven miles. It ended up being somehow nine and a half for some people. And you would have thought that I had them do the baton death march on hot coals because it was two miles longer. And I said, well, what if there was a follow on mission 10 K down the road and you had to walk there or your LZ was busted and they can't land the bird here. So you have to walk 5k to a new LZ. Like you can't always just be planning and prepared for the known. You have to be fine and adjust and adaptable to the unknown. And I feel like that's a missing link now that dudes just aren't hard anymore. Like, you know, I remember being in battalion with guys that I looked at and I'm like, how did you get here? Like you're 145 pounds of nothing impressive. Like I'm not even sure you can bench press your body weight, but that guy never quit and he could wake up tomorrow and do an unknown distance movement with an unknown amount of weight on his back because he was hard and he refused to quit. So on top of PT and on top of like preparing yourself physically, you need to prepare yourself mentally and go get uncomfortable. Go have someone just torture you for 24 hours. Like that's why when you announced the hell day, that's how I originally reached out to you. Cause I was like, finally someone is doing this. Like I didn't know if legally someone could do this ever, but finally someone is because that's the part that is unknown. I don't question someone's ability to go complete a PT test. You can do that. You can train for that. You can't train for six, four, six, eight hours of just getting smoked and still having to function. So you need to do those types of events as well. Um, and this isn't a shameless plug for you, um, but that is the true story of how I reached out to you in the first place. So whether it's have an older brother who's always liked to, to torture you, go do this, or just find a really big mountain that you're like, man, I don't think I could climb over that. And then you try, and then you try again, and you try again until you finally do. You have to get uncomfortable, and you have to become comfortable with it. Well said, Nick. Thank you so much for your time, for coming on the Send Me podcast. It's always a pleasure being with you, my man, and I'm excited for our project in the future as well. Yes, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Excellent, Nick. Again, for our listeners out there, check Nick Goff out on Instagram. It is Dark Corner Concepts, Dark underscore Corner underscore Concepts. Check him out. Keep in touch with Nick. Nick, thanks again, brother. God bless. Anytime, my man. Your day, man. See ya. If you're still listening to this episode, don't turn down your volume. Keep listening. We're asking for your support. Running this podcast at the quality and level that we do requires an ample amount of time, resources, and funding. We would be grateful if you would consider supporting us via the SOCOM Athlete Patreon Fund through a small monthly donation, whether it be just a dollar or two dollars or three dollars. 
Any amount that you feel comfortable supporting us with is greatly appreciated. Our Patreon fund can be located here on the episode caption by clicking on the link or by going to www.patreon.com slash SOCOMathlete or simply typing in SOCOMathlete Patreon in a Google search. Additionally, if you have an iPhone, please consider giving us a simple five-star review or a written review. These help tremendously in the Apple algorithm of giving our podcast increased visibility and getting our message out to a larger audience. Thank you again for listening to the SOCOM Athlete Podcast. Send me. This is your host, Jason. We are out. Up. Up. Down. Up. Up. Up.